I'm Kyle. Hi, I'm Matt. (laughs) And I'm Trevor. And welcome to Catching Up on Cinema. If you aren't familiar with the program, Catching Up on Cinema is a film analysis podcast wherein we introduce each other to films, expand our cinematic horizons, and in essence, catch up on our cinema. So it is the month of April 2021, and we are in the midst of our Action April event month. Uh, Every episode this week, we've been covering an entry in the filmography of some of the greatest action stars of action cinema. Uh, So this week, after having covered uh, Sylvester Stallone in the form of Rambo, First Blood Part Two, and Arnold Schwarzenegger in the form of Commando, uh, we've graduated from the mid-80s era of the action star into nearly the mid-90s in the form of Jean-Claude Van Damme's Ard Target, or is it Hard Target, from 1993, directed by John Woo. Uh, so as we tend to do um, in talking about these, I guess, like franchise films, this isn't a franchise film. It does have a sequel. But when, when we're talking about the category of like an action star, um, they all have their own brand. They all have their own form of gravitas that brings people to their films. Um, I think it's fitting that we talk a little bit about the man himself, uh, JCVD. So um my brother and I, uh, by the way, my brother was featured in the intro there, Matt. Uh, I, I guess we have a little bit of a shared history with JCVD, but being as you're the guest, Matt, uh, why don't you start us off? Like, what's your uh, connection to Van Damme? Where did you first hear of him or what did he mean to you uh, earlier in life? Uh, Van Damme, so he's a fascinating one in the sense that, like, he was really more the king of the fighting movies, but... Yeah, and fighting movies and action movies tend to get lumped together, but you really have to separate the two if you want to cover, you know, the Stallones and the Rambos and eventually the Seagulls or whomever you want to expand to. Um, To me, like, yeah, I remember uh, Kickboxer was the first one I saw with him when I was very young and really enjoyed that. And then Bloodsport, obviously, is like usually most people's gateway to Van Damme. And then he kind of transitioned into more of these more traditional action roles. And this was kind of, uh, I think, peak Van Damme in many ways. Um, there's just certain components that like you almost always had to account for with him. Like uh, they always had to explain his accent. He always had like a certain charismatic like char- aspect to him that was so ridiculously over the top that only he could pull it off. Um, be it positive or negative it just it was memorable we'll say that and yeah and there was an excuse to do the splits and or a high kick so as long as you had those three you're in for some good van damage (laughs) yeah yeah well well said I mean I like I said my brother and I we were raised under the same roof so I want to say our introduction to JCVD was relatively the same I I think I saw blood sport first but I think it's interesting to note that um, there were a handful of like R-rated movies that like I, I created images in my head of what they were long before I ever saw them. And Bloodsport was one of them because all I had to go by was the title, fucking Bloodsport. <laughs> and, the, and maybe the cover art, I can't even remember. Um, but all I knew was it was rated R and it was something I desperately wanted to see. And thankfully, when I got around to watching it, it didn't let me down. But um, I think it's interesting that you make that distinction between fight and action movies because i I make the same distinction and that's actually why we're talking about hard target today instead of bloodsport because in my mind anyway bloodsport is like kind of the quintessential jcvd movie but 
it, when compared to some of the other movies we've been talking about this month, it doesn't really fit under the same like subgenre category because it's, it's a martial arts tournament film. Those those are a subgenre onto themselves. But when we're talking about Rambo and Commando and like like you had mentioned, we may be getting into Seagal territory later on. Uh, it's a totally different category of film, uh, which is why we landed on Hard Target. But yeah, uh, this basically was peak Van Damme in a lot of ways. I think 1994 was where uh, he made the most money in the form of getting paid through Street Fighter uh, and in the form of uh, box office returns with Time Cop. Uh, but leading up to the film, like it's kind of interesting like tracing his career path where he started out doing like extras work as a gay karate man in something called Monaco Forever. Uh, famously, and this has been gificized and put all over YouTube, uh, he was an extra in the film Breakin', where he's just in like a spandex leotard going like this in a crowd scene. He's just dancing in the background of a breakdancing scene. But uh, kind of his first real role was as a villain because it was the mid-80s and Ivan Drago and all of the USSR was kind of like our go-tos for bad guys. They cast him as a Russian kickboxer in a No Retreat, No Surrender, um, which the only reason I'm really going into so much detail here so early on is that, um, that that was basically his first major film role. And it just so happened to be directed. It was an American film directed by a Hong Kong filmmaker. I believe it was a Corey Yuen production, um, which ties into Hard Target. But before I get too off the rails and into the woods here, um, Kyle, uh, what does JCVD mean to you? Because like, I've had conversations with you in the past and I want to say you have basically nothing like, like you're going into this almost blind. What's the movie where he's drunk in the bar dancing kickboxer. I've seen 10 minutes of that. Uh, like that, that movie up to that scene, uh, street fighter. And then this movie, that's the whole of my JCVD, all so, of it. So going by just that, do you, do you see any of the, the, those major components, those recurring elements that my brother had mentioned early on? I mean, there's not, he's not really doing much in Street Fighter. And I didn't really, like I said, Kickboxer, you say? Yeah, I didn't even, I didn't even watch, I didn't even get all the way through it. Um, so this, I can see the fighting elements, but yeah, I don't understand how he was a cultural phenomenon because I haven't seen any of those fighting movies. Yeah, I, I think that's an interesting perspective, which is a huge part of why I wanted to talk about this movie in particular, because from a stylistic standpoint, uh, <laughs> this, this is a curious film in a lot of ways. Um, and it's also, like like Matt had said, kind of peak Van Damme. This is when he was regarded as like an action star. So the way he's framed in this film, if you don't have any of that nostalgia factor to go along with it, if you don't have any appreciation for the man and what he brings to the table... You're just looking at the cinematography and the editing and going like, huh? <laughs> what? Well, it seems fitting that he would do a John Woo movie, like an American John Woo movie. So I'm like, it's actually perfect. Like, it's just because John Woo movies are kind of goofy. Uh, Wind Talkers is not quite there, but like Face Off, that's that's pretty goofy. Um, but I was going to say, like, yeah, we just didn't grow up with JCVD. We were pretty much all Arnold. Uh, Jean-Claude Van Damme, basically, when we, were, when we came to he was pretty much done and Arnold was kind of doing his thing at that point, but he was like in his second phase. Gotcha. I mean, Arnold was, was kind of the one with the most longevity because his, his nineties were 
pretty solid uh, yeah. up, up until maybe like end of days. But up until yeah. then, it, it, it was a solid decade for him, unlike Stallone and like Seagal crapped out halfway through the decade. And you could actually argue that Van Damme did the same. Seagal's 90s stuff. I did see like Mark for Death. I think that was in the 90s. I feel like Seagal had a pretty nice... He was pretty good in the 90s, but he was going up against Arnold at that point. Uh, but really quick, if you punch in Arnold Schwarzenegger on IMDb, the first movie that comes up, that pops up, The Sixth Man. What? Sixth day. Is it the sixth day? <laughs> sixth day. Sixth day. Sixth man is the... Uh, is, that's, that's the basketball, basketball movie. It's <laughs> the basketball movie. It's the sixth, uh, sixth day is the first movie that pops up. Not Terminator. Not True Lies. The sixth day. I don't I'm know incapacitated. Why. My side hurts. <laughs> the sixth I, man. God damn it. I get that and Juana man mixed up. Uh, well, Street Fighter connection, DJ. <laughs> but yeah, if, if the answer to any question you might have about what what JCVD was doing on the set while the while they were filming Street Fighter was below. And maybe, maybe some people as well. <laughs> now I'm like, now I'm wondering, like, who's he banged in all of his movies? Like, <laughs> it's, it's it's hard to say, but I mean, the man was kind of a, a Hollywood sex symbol as they were making this movie in particular. So, um, but th- that being said, uh, that that gets JCVD out of the way. I'm not gonna dwell too long on John Woo because uh, believe it or not folks at home uh, you may not be aware of this but Kyle and I actually have covered one of John Woo's films uh, one of his Hong Kong films in the form of The Killer uh, which is one of the best from his filmography if you ask me and is a far better example of what he's capable of uh, rather than Ard Target Um, but long story short this was actually John Woo's very first American production um, and it was a big fucking deal Um, him arri- him arriving on American shores in 1993. Um, I don't know the details of this. I've actually been trying pretty hard um, in recent years to do a little digging and uh, you know, like put on my historic historian's cap here uh, because I'm curious uh, what happened in Hong Kong or in China that resulted in this like minor exodus of, of talent from their film industry because the 90s was full of Hong Kong directors in particular, not, not necessarily like mainland China directors, but just strictly Hong Kong directors migrating over here and uh, taking the reins of a lot of our high profile action films. And I get it. Like if you look at their resumes, they were certainly qualified, but it just seemed like maybe, maybe some shit went down with like maybe a new law was passed or something. I think um, I can't tell you exact reasons why I can tell you from like, being around during that era, like I think uh, the transfer of Hong Kong was a huge thing kind of looming. Yeah. And I think also the success of Rumble in the Bronx kind of exposed Americans to uh, the sense of seeing an Asian action star in the lead role, which was pretty foreign, you know, and it was very comparable to, I don't know if you guys follow like mixed martial arts much, but like, Remember, there was things like Bellator or like other like non-UFC related companies where you might see like some footage on a late night showing of like some guy in Europe who kicks ass or whatever. And you always want to see how he'd match up against the American UFC guys. But by the time they actually worked out the contracts, the guy in Europe's like 20, 
20 years older and can barely walk into the ring and just doesn't have anything to add and gets wiped out and all that illusion goes away. That was basically what happened here where it was like, yeah, Jackie Chan came over, but he was like 40 years old. So it's like all these American directors are like, Hey, let's build franchises around this guy. But it's like, he can't do the stuff that you think of him doing like same with uh, Chow Yun fat, same with Jet Li. Like these guys were all in much advanced age by the time that they were considered over here. And there really wasn't anybody who stepped up and took the reins. So I think it was a combination of that. And also the working conditions I imagine in with the unions or whatever in the States are probably much, much more flexible to be able to kind of plan out your daily life rather than, uh, overseas. Um, yeah, all, all really good points. I'm glad you, I'm glad you mentioned the handover because uh, somehow that that skipped over me. Um, yeah, 1997 was when Hong Kong was handed back to China um, from from Britain. Uh, so I'd imagine like that would have been like a tumultuous time where it's like there, it's a liminal space where there's all sorts of possibilities, both positive and negative. So it's like maybe we should just like step out for a bit and see, see how things pan out and then we can come home. And I mean, it worked out for everybody, but yeah, you're totally right about the, the Jackie Chan effect as well. Cause <laughs> I seem to remember a, a Chow Yun fat showing up in a Marky Mark movie at one point, <laughs> I think it was the corrupter. Um, he did a couple of American films, uh, even that Sean William Scott one, the bulletproof monk, but that was, that was a little bit later, but yeah, I, I remember when they tried to make him a thing never really worked out but like like i said if you had seen the killer if you had seen hard-boiled you would know that yeah this guy in his native language given the right role he can put asses in seats it's just pairing him up with marky mark is not not the best plan is hard-boiled the thumb where he he sticks his head out of the uh office while he's eating it looks like he's eating uh cereal or soup and gives so, so kyle is talking about a gift that i send people randomly sometimes um that's i think from a better a better tomorrow um maybe even a better tomorrow too but it's just this awesome gift where he he leans back in a doorway and he's like chewing on an orange or something he just shoots There's a thumbs th- up to a guy a nice who looks, gift. guy who looks really bummed out so if you ever if you ever have need to cheer up a buddy just send him chow yun fat doing a thumbs up <laughs> so i never considered i never thought about that matt that they the wave of jackie chan movies we got were like no no no, he's old now and you guys are just now discovering so that makes me think we should probably do uh a, a month where we do jet lee chow yun fat jackie lee jackie lee jackie chan <laughs> there's, there's a lot of a lot of chinese names right back to back so <laughs> You know what I meant. Uh, but we should go back and do some of like do their early action movies from over there. Oh, I would love to do that. Although that that reeks of yet another situation where it's me doing all the doing all the picking. So maybe well, I, I would have maybe I'd have to just like let you pick, pick what you the ones. Want. Yeah. I'd want to do hard boiled. That's one I do want to see. Uh, there's probably a couple of Jackie. Ch- I'd want to do rumble in the Bronx because I want to go back and watch it. Is it possible to get it without the dub or is it only with the dub? I've never actually seen it without the dub. Um, I don't think it would make it a better movie, honestly. Uh, the, dub dad, for, the dub for that's really good. I sent my dad a polo while I was watching. I was just watching The Wailing, and he sent me a polo. I'm like, he's like, what you up to? I'm like, oh, I'm watching a Korean film. He's like, are you watching it with the dubs or the subtitles? I'm like, fucking subtitles. I'm not watching a dub. Are you out it's of your 2021, mind? Pop. <laughs> we don't do that. I read it. No, the some of those uh I think they were either New Line or Dimension Films uh dubs for Jackie Chan's like nineties films. They they were not half bad. I especially like the guy who did his uncle's voice. 
in all of those films. Like, oh, was- Kiang, how are you doing? What are you doing here? You're not supposed to be here. <laughs> like, it was, it's embarrassing, but I like that they, they match that same voice actor, that same dub guy to that actor across multiple films. <laughs> it worked out beautifully. Uh, but anyway, uh, we should probably get to our target. Uh, so once again, this is Hard Target, uh, starring Jean-Claude Van Damme, directed by John Woo. Uh, although Kyle had pointed out to me that is somewhat in dispute in some areas. Not it. It is a John Woo film, but parts of it have certainly been tampered with in in certain ways. But uh, it's from 1993, and uh, this was certainly like, if not peak Van Damme, uh, just just before the peak. So the the steady march up to the peak, but. Um, I guess we're just going to go front to back with this thing. So uh, opening credits, I, I kind of love this because there's there, only for one reason, honestly. The cinematography here is pretty good, um, as is the editing. So we open in the streets of uh, New Orleans, and uh, there's a fella here that for a minute I thought was Buck Flowers. I was like, is that Hollywood's best hobo, Buck, Buck Flowers? <laughs> or is that Mick Foley? It's neither, but he kind of looks like a combination of the two. <laughs> Um, but this poor fella is just in like the empty streets of New Orleans. I don't think that ever happens at any time of day on any day of the year. Um, but he's being pursued by people on motorcycles and SUVs and they're shooting like broadhead arrows at him. Like, but they're like rocket powered. They're like pneumatic guns. It's not just crossbows, not just bow and arrows. They have like pressure cannons that they're firing fucking broadheads at him with. Um, yeah, they're chasing him. And I, the shots here are quit pretty good. Like, like it has a nice look and feel to it. That's, I think this film's strongest suit is that it has a solid look to it. Um, especially indoors, outdoors, it can look kind of ass. Um, well, but- that's, that's New Orleans. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Your words, that's not true. mine. Yeah. <laughs> Do you remember bad Lieutenant? I'm like the outside scenes of bad Lieutenant kind of look like shit. Uh, I see. I'm going to disagree with you. I think that this opening scene is, it's trying to be intense, but because I have no idea what's happening, I, it doesn't make any sense. I'm like, the guys with the dirt bikes chasing him, I'm like, I, I feel like there's, I'm supposed to be like, oh, what's going on in this movie? But it's so, I don't know what's going on. I'm like, I, I, don't, I don't get it. I think some of that, though, is like, that's where the John Woo factor is fascinating with this movie, because there's so many actually like fun homages to his previous work in there that because we're you know for american audience the first time we're seeing his stuff for the most part like you didn't quite realize that that was the point of like emphasizing like motorcycle like stunts and things like that right out the gate because that was such a staple of some of his action movies in china but uh yeah in this it just comes out of nowhere because it it goes from kind of a sleepy opening to like super intense like in instantaneously yeah, the energy level spikes pretty dramatically, but and and the other thing that's funny about this that actually feels like a John Wooism is just the sheer length of the sequence. Like this is straight up like five minutes plus for a character who has no dialogue. We don't we don't know why we're supposed to care about him, but because he's in a John Woo movie, he just will not fucking die. Like this man is a Terminator. He is a bir- he is a bearded Terminator because he gets shot with like five different arrows. He gets blown the fuck up at one point, but then he he like responds in kind by trying to blow them up with like a gas can that he he somehow lights on fire and throws back at them. But 
Um, it is a strange cold open in that the credits are playing over all of this as well. Um, it's it's truly bizarre, but that's part of the charm of it, if you ask me. But the the icing on the cake for me, anyway, and I got I actually like laughed on the couch watching this because I didn't remember this, is that directed by John Woo appears on the screen just as the guy dies, <laughs> like an arrow pierces his torso. He gets shot in the back, and like I said, this has been a laborious process of watching this guy get like tortured and like killed about five times before he finally bites the dust completely. But yeah, he eats an arrow straight through the back and out the chest, and he falls into the water just as directed by John Woo shows up on the screen. So it's like, I guess that's my introduction to this mysterious John Woo guy, is like, that's the image he wants me to associate with his name, is is a hobo getting murdered. <laughs> this is even more confusing because we have a guy being shot at with a bow and arrow. I'm like, okay, we're trying to be inconspicuous. Makes sense. Arnold Vosloo pulls out a fucking grenade launcher. I'm like, okay, okay, we're not being conspicuous. We're not being inconspicuous. What's the deal? Like, why does he have a grenade launcher? It was just a strange, strange thing to throw in. Yeah, Kyle, uh, while we're on the subject of it, do you want to introduce our two chief villain characters? Because they're both present for this. Uh, actually, you may, may want to explain what the situation here is, because this is a, a, a most dangerous game situation we have going here yeah if you're not going to watch the movie if you haven't at this point it's not a big deal if it's spoiled for you we are hunting man for sport in the streets of new orleans uh for some reason uh i mean Werner herzog's bad lieutenant i guess it's just the wild west down there so who knows? no it's a great reason because you have to explain <laughs> away the accent of jean-claude van damme and that's why he's a cajun man <laughs> that's why he can you know have, that's why he doesn't speak fluent english despite you know and everything suggesting he's just a regular former soldier it, it makes sense yeah so our villains in this movie uh i i always like a good like well-known like two good villains like uh, payback you've got uh john oh i can't think of his name gremlins 2 whatever that guy's name is gremlins 2 remember oh, the guy from oh gremlins? john glover John Glover. Okay. And and then the little short guy, how they're like the two, like he's got a nice little side guy that they have the good back and forth. Arnold Vosloo and Lance Henriksen. Lance Henriksen is the main bad guy. Arnold Vosloo is the muscle. Uh, Vosloo from The Mummy, obviously. And uh, Lance Henriksen is Bishop from Aliens. Oh, yeah. They're they're both cinematic treasures in their own respective ways. Like, I, I, I really like both of them, honestly. Like, Arnold Vosloo, uh, Kyle had told me via text just the other day, that's like, he underappreciated, man. He should have he got more roles. Um, South Africa's best. <laughs> um, and Lance, Henrik, Lance Henriksen is, you know, a wonderful character actor that um, everything he appears in, he seems to give a shit. And uh, in particular, I like when he gets to stretch his wings a little bit like he does here where he actually gets to be big like normally he does the whole stone face thing where it's just he has such a good look and he has such a good voice that he doesn't really have to try very hard he's just that guy with the the leathery features um, but in this he gets to be loud and colorful and uh, the quick and the dead actually is one of the more interesting uses of your Lance Henriksen because he, he plays a, a fraud he plays a con man gunfighter that talks big but doesn't have the talent to back it up and he's like this like garish flamboyant character that has like the the nastiest fucking facial hair. <laughs> uh, it's actually it's a really interesting role for him. But I had a lot of fun getting to see him actually put on a performance, like put on a fucking show in this film. But um, also, that's an interesting connection. Um, I wasn't sure when I should bring this up, but I'm I'm gonna 
derail us right away and just say that um, apparently Sam Raimi uh, was on set for much of the production of this film because the producers didn't have confidence in John Woo and his ability to, you know, serve as chief director for a film production, being as his English was probably not tip top at the time. Uh, so we have the very, very, very talented Sam Raimi just waiting in the wings. It's like, I don't know how to feel about that because I like both of them, but you know, Sam Raimi's not somebody that you just want to have hanging around, but um, there is a connection in the form of uh, Ted Raimi uh, who does appear in this film in exactly one scene. It's like, Oh, I called him Ted. I'm on a first name basis at this point with Sam Raimi movies. I'm like, Oh, there's Ted. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, it's kind of like the Howard brothers, Ron and Clint. It's like, it's, it's a package deal. Yeah. It's like, Oh, Hey, it's Clint. (laughs) You never see Ron. You see Clint. Yeah, but it, I think it's fascinating because, um, funny enough, that movie I just rambled on and on about, The Quick and the Dead, Lance Henriksen, that character, it, that film is directed by Sam Raimi. Uh, oh. So maybe they maybe they talked in between takes or something. <laughs> or maybe they formed a relationship on the set. Um, but yeah, thanks for introducing our villains there, Kyle. And our next scene introduces our leading lady, uh, Yancey Butler, who, as far as I understand, made her debut in this film. Um, and the way she's introduced is very old Hollywood, but but with like new Hollywood sensibilities. Because like she pulls up in this fancy car, and like the lighting is just pitch perfect, and we get this like zoom in on her face with like the her face is all blown out with the lights, and like she has eye light, and she's just made to look like beyond human, like gorgeous. It's it's a little weird, <laughs> to be honest. In and she fact, has makeup hiding a cold sore the rest of the movie. She does. I'm glad you noticed that guy. <laughs> I tried not to, but it's, it was right there. Well, when they're ramming the camera right up in her fucking face, it, it's hard to hide stuff like that, no matter how good your makeup technicians are. But basically, she's a new arrival in this, this part of New Orleans, and she's looking for her papa or her, her daddy. Uh, <laughs> claude will, will refer to him later um but she has a, a sit-down meeting with this old lady and um i gotta say that like the the atmospheric lighting in the house with the old lady is again like attention to detail um but perhaps not in the areas where we're wanting it um which translates very well to the next scene kyle where we're introduced to john claude van damme and uh, you told me a little story about the editing room uh, some of the post-production stuff that went down with this film. Do you want to fill the listeners in on what that might have been? Which part? That JCVD and the editor uh, cut the movie? Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah apparently uh, John, Jean-Claude Van Damme. The, it was supposed to be more centered around Lance Henriksen, his character, and Arnold Vosloo doing this uh, uh, Manhunter scheme that they've got going on. And apparently, Jean-Claude Van Damme allegedly locked them out of the editing room just with the editor and they recut this. It was supposed to be like over two hours long. I believe there was a sex scene that was supposed to be included. For some reason, Jean-Claude didn't keep, I don't know why. But yeah, uh, to say this is a John Woo movie is maybe this is what John Woo had in mind, but I'm not too positive. You know, I heard one thing too when I was doing a little bit of research that they said that part of the issue with it was that it got delayed when they initially went to release because they went to the review board to get the rating and they wanted an R rating, but it was kicked back and said, no, this is an NC 17 movie. It's too violent, but they gave no specifications over why it was too violent. Again, probably because of the racism Trevor's talking about with Asian directors. So John Woo kept having to go back and trim 
action sequences trying to make it less violent, but at the same time preserve the action quality of it. And during this course of time, that's when Van Damme went and did his own edit because he was sick of waiting for this movie to come out because they kept coming back and saying like, oh, here, review this. And then it would get kicked back and say, no, it's too violent. So it delayed the release of the movie for a pretty substantial amount of time, which back then was huge because you didn't have streaming and stuff like that. So, Yeah, no, I, I had read similar accounts. Um, the the stuff about the violence and the and the the ratings board kind of like kicking it back to him that was that was vexing to read about that because not being given any notes as to what the problem is must must just be a nightmare because it's a it's a film it's it's a very delicate thing that can be completely knocked off its rails uh, with just the slightest cuts um, and yet I have a theory uh, as to how this. This, this film exists in its finished form because um, famously there there is a uh, like an extended cut of this film that exists only in bootleg form it was never intended for any sort of release um, I actually would be curious to see that someday just because I'm into that sort of thing um, but my theory is that um, the first half of the movie has some very specific Van Damme centric moments in it that the Van Damme cut uh, they 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 used those elements of because uh the the van damme specific elements i'm talking about are just like glamour shots of him essentially (laughs) Um, there's an absurd number of them in the early goings in the film but then when you get towards the back half of it he doesn't even really talk anymore honestly it becomes just a strict like straightforward action film i think most of like the mpaa related cuts probably just happened in the back half of the movie because it is still a very very violent film with a pretty solid body count um but when it comes to like van damme's tampering with the film i don't really see it it does feel enough like a john woo movie in the second half um but that first half like the the part that we're talking about right now in fact the reason why we're talking about right now is his introduction um because i don't know if you paid attention to the editing here kyle but um jcvd is introduced like like we've talked about how you should introduce a monster <laughs> where it's like you get parts of him at a time like in stages like you get his like his duster you get his shoes you get his hands you get those luscious belgian lips <laughs> like bit by like piecemeal and he gets like this grand reveal of his face because that's his Oof. that's his selling point i guess <laughs> and this mullet uh this is one of the greatest mullets of all time i think that we've captured on screen yeah actually uh cul-de-sac here let's talk mullets so great greatest mullets in cinema so this this is up there just because of the the particular manner in which it's he's got soul glow in it it's like yeah (laughs) no it's so manicured it's like the most like perfectly shaped tousled mullet you can imagine it's a, it's right up there with. I think it's superior to Chuck Norris's mullet in The Hitman. Uh, look that up, Kyle, if you've never seen it before. On it. <laughs> and uh, Matt, would would you say that like Kurt Russell may may be the the king of the mullet, or do you have a better example? I, I, I feel I, like I, I feel like you have expert status in this. I, area. I mean, you're cheating if you include Roddy Piper, but yeah, Kurt Kurt Russell is uh, probably for a major actor the king of the mullet. Uh, but Van Damme, you know, I, I got to say this one is something else. Like, th- that's why I was talking about, like, a charismatic element that only Van Damme could introduce, whether you love it or hate it. That This mullet was so perfect. Yeah, 
actually matt um i don't know how much like kyle would be in the know here but like i, I don't want to completely derail us although that seems to be my main aim during this entire episode <laughs> so apparently kyle just found chuck norris from the hitman <laughs> that's what that noise tells me <laughs> oh man that is a great mullet uh i think that <laughs> i think i think van damme's got to beat because like uh walkers is like uh it's flowier. He's got more of a Martin Riggs like fluff to it. This is like straight down, just butt nick, just straight down the back, but spritzed and uh, primped, I guess is the way. Is that what you well, say? The thing about this one too that's fantastic is like his whole ensemble is such a like new wavy, like high fashion concept for being a guy who's supposedly homeless. Yeah, right. And so you imagine the hairstyle too. It's like you wonder why he's living on the streets because he spends all his money on you know primping and propping himself up. But, you want to know why you're fucking poor? Look at that duster. Look at that haircut. <laughs> but that's what I mean. It's like when you see some of these other, like any Kurt Russell movie where he's got a mullet, you just assume he's the guy who cuts his hair with like a hacksaw. You know, it's like versus this, it's like he seems like the kind of guy who went out of his way to find a stylist to perfectly manicure every aspect of this well, same with his outfit and same with every component to him well we're introduced he just got back from the barber like legit he just got this haircut also yet yeah, he's a person without a home who sometimes works on a boat and yes. he dresses like this yeah. yes he is a person experiencing homelessness who yes when he's lucky gets to work on a boat <laughs> um, <laughs> when they let him um but the, the point I was trying to get at, actually, um, and Matt, this is mostly just a question for you, is uh, like you said, Van Damme, part of the charm of the guy, and, and we've, you and I have talked about this plenty of times, is that he's an eccentric performer. Um, he has an extra element to him that a lot of these, like, like I'm thinking of Steven Seagal. <laughs> a lot of those types of guys, they don't have that extra layer of dimension to them as an on-screen performer. Van Damme, it, kind of like I, I say about John Travolta, he always makes choices. Like there is that, that one movie that we watched as a family, as a family that tells you something about our family. Um, I think it was called uh, en Enemies Closer. That is had that where he's the vegan? Uh, yes. Friend, the Mountie? Or whatever. Yes, where he's a vegan Mountie terrorist. <laughs> like, you can tell none of that was in the script, but Van Damme was like, no, I'm going to be vegan. I do not eat animals, <laughs> but and I feel like that's something that he tries to bring to the table whenever he can. It's just like weird shit, and and it's charming for the most part. Well, it's he's very European in that regard. I mean, when you look at in contrast to like Arnold, like Arnold, every character he plays, it always seems like by default the name is like some generic American, despite his heavy accent. Like John, John Kimball. Mage. Yeah, John <laughs> Kimball, John Matrix. You know, it's always like, it explains nothing. Versus like Van Damme, it's like he's very clearly wasn't born in the States based on his accent and his mannerisms, his culture. And he likes to, he notices little subtleties that I apparently American audiences mistake or, or ignore. And it stands out. And I think that that's where the tragedy of him, where, where Seagal thrived was because he took on all these roles where you just kind of had to be a wooden protagonist who kicks the shit out of everyone, which is what they kept trying to pigeonhole Van Damme into. Whereas he, you know, he was busy doing a bunch of blow and acting like an asshole, but 
part of that, I think, was the result of not being challenged to do anything besides do the splits, you know, flex, and be the face, you know, and the rest of the time you can just phone in your performance. Like there weren't any standards or expectations for him, so he just kind of fell into this constant state of just being like, well, I'm just going to party the whole time. Whereas a guy like Seagal, it's like, there is no charisma. I'm a vacuum of charisma, but I'm willing to play the same default, just hollow character. And it's easy for a director to work around that. Oh, like this, this role was a Kurt Russell vehicle originally. Like the plan was to have Kurt Russell play Claude Bordeaux, or it probably wouldn't have even taken place in New Orleans had Kurt Russell agreed to it. Yeah, John you can, wanted him. Yeah, and you can kind of see like some of the moments where Van Damme's trying to act stoic and hard where it would have been ideal and perfect with a Kurt Russell in that role. But it just doesn't work when you got this goofy guy who likes to break dance in his free time. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, you're, you're absolutely right. That, I mean, the big fatal flaw of Steven Seagal's career was that he bought into his own hype. And Jean-Claude did too, um, but it didn't translate as much into the on-screen product. It was more like personal life kind of stuff. Um, but it's kind of funny how many parallels you can establish between Shawn Michaels and Van Damme, where it's like there was that period of time where Van Damme lost his smile and, and, and his career kind of stunk because of it. But he always had that potential. But not, like we're going to get back on track in just a minute here. But um, the two movies or maybe three movies uh, that, that jump out to me the most uh, that do a lot to explain Van Damme's character when it comes to how he likes to be portrayed on screen uh, Bloodsport, uh, because the uh, the framing device for that film, uh, the relationship between him and his Shidoshi, is it's heartwarming in a way that very few action movies of that era really cared to be. Um, and uh, the big one is Lionheart, where there's so much zaniness in that script that seems very like particularly like manicured for him as a performer, where it's like if you put Stallone in that same role, it would just be complete crap. But with, with Van Damme, it's like, yeah, this actually kind of makes sense. And yes, this has like a, a strangely sensitive European quality to it that actually kind of gels, actually kind of works. Uh, but the really big one that I've been trying to find a way to shoehorn in here for like a half an hour now is The Quest. Um, the Quest is an underseen Van Damme movie that happens to be, I think, one of the only films he's ever directed. Um, and the beginning of that film is him is like, he's like a circus performer that hangs out with orphans in like the 1900s. It's so bizarre. But like I said, that's the movie. That's the movie he chose to direct up. And it wouldn't be like, dec it would be decades before he would do that again. But that's the character. That's the movie he decided to make. So you can tell that he, he has, a, he has peculiar sensibilities that aren't especially well tailored for an action hero. <laughs> But he chiefly does action films and somehow it, it usually works, not all the time. But in this case, it works better than it does in a lot of his films. He was in Last Action Hero? As himself. Uh, he was yeah. on the red carpet scene. He, he had the same mullet he does in this. <laughs> I gotta go back. I gotta rewatch that. It's coming it's, out it's on been... 4K very soon, Kyle. <laughs> Way too long since I've seen that. Uh, Matt, I did want to correct you real quick when you said that uh, Steven Seagal was this stoic guy who kicked everybody's asses. He didn't kick everybody's asses. He does the same fucking flip move every fucking time. <laughs> and if I guess he also spoke Ebonics for a decent chunk of his filmography as well. So, cocksucker, motherfucker. <laughs> That's, that, I think that was uh, the one with Ja Rule, if I'm right. 
I can't remember the name of that one. It takes place in a prison. He has a do-rag in it. But J- Steven Seagal is a chameleon. He blends in in any environment you place him in. And then he becomes the apex predator of that environment. <laughs> you put him in China, he becomes the, the best damn Chinese person you could ever imagine. <laughs> you put him in a, in a largely black populated prison, oh, <laughs> he's going to wear a do-rag. I, and he's I was going to say, out-tough everyone. <laughs> I, I know he's a huge. You're a big fan, but Tom Segura's uh, bit about Steven Seagal is That's so exactly spot on. Gonna, like, I won't even. Yeah, I don't want to disparage it because it's amazing, and I'd ruin it. But yeah, he, he sums up very well. I was like, Trevor, have you heard that bit? I don't think I have. I've seen okay, his. Then, I've seen his dance video. I don't think I've heard his bit though. That you actually just pinpointed exactly his bit, which is pretty funny. Kyle, I own a book called Segology. <laughs> <laughs> Should probably edit that out. <laughs> People will come right. looking for me. But uh, to get back to Van Damme, one thing I, I think is warrants pointing out is this is the guy who turned down the first Expendables because the character he would there wasn't a explanation given to him initially of what his character was supposed to be. It was just some, Stallone called him up and basically said, "Hey, I'm doing an ensemble piece with all the old eight action stars from our era. You want in?" And he actually pushed back and said, like, you got to tell me what I'm doing. And that's why when he's in the second one, they actually have some pretty well thought out backstory for a shitty action sequel. Yeah. And and uh, another major motivating factor in his more recent filmography has been his kids. Um, he's I think he was estranged for them at some point in his life, um, probably due to like, I think he actually suffers from bipolar or something. But um, his, his coke days were not good for him. But um, these days, it seems like there there has to be something in his contract or something that his son uh, has to be in everything he does. Because he, I, I know what he looks like now. I've seen enough of these late era Van Damme movies. It's like, oh, that's his kid. And, oh, he's kicking his son a lot. Coke use usually has a, a negative effect in uh, custody battles. So, yeah, I could see that causing a problem. Like I said... Connections, revolutions, Shawn Michaels and Van Damme, look into it. They even had the same fucking haircut in 1993. <laughs> and Aside they kicked people for a living. <laughs> Aside from Stone Cold Steve Austin, were all wrestlers in the late 80s and early 90s addicted to cocaine? Because that seems to be the story that keeps coming I'm sure up. they were into like hard stuff. Cocaine, they probably laugh at you. It's like, bring me, bring me something that can get my heart moving. <laughs> Uh, anyway, let's get let's get back to the movie for fuck's sake. <laughs> so yeah, we get introduced to Van Damme and his uh, his poverty. Uh, we do see that he can't afford to pay for his coffee and shitty gumbo. Um, and like I said, the cinematography here is meant to make him look sexy as fuck. Wall destitute <laughs> which is a very odd combination uh, yeah. two things uh this area is really run down uh can i ask you guys something you guys live in the northwest you live in seattle how often do you guys have chowder never <laughs> yeah this is something that bugs me movies i'm like people that live in the area where there's like a food thing having the food aside from like eating pizza in new york i feel like pizza is pretty fucking common but people in new orleans don't have gumbo except for once a year i'm assuming and it's a special occasion. You should have had him eating like beignets or something. <laughs> or plantains. Yeah. <laughs> uh, the other thing, the, the crime in this movie feels more like a Batman movie, uh, even though this movie is completely done in the daytime, because this next scene is like, this is Gotham. This is a Gotham move. Yeah, Kyle, you want to walk us through what goes down here? Yeah, uh, so 
this the the hot lady comes in uh nat is her name Na- i was oh short for natalie no short for natasha i'm like well then go by Nat- go by tasha then isn't that the short for anyway <laughs> the fuck's she wrong goes- with you <laughs> she she he uh jean-claude's uh talking to the server behind the counter she comes up and she's got like a wad of cash just like she's got a few hundreds and a whole bunch of bills and he sees it and i'm like is he gonna fucking rob her like i wasn't sure what was gonna happen but his spider senses start tingling and he gets the sense that these two goons these are goons by the way uh sitting at a table uh over the way and he sees them in a reflection he's like oh they're gonna rob her and uh that is what happens they are trying to rob her that's one of the things i think they're gonna do uh in broad daylight on a busy street and jean-claude steps in yeah uh they they backhand her at one point and the sound effect that they put over this is just like 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 it it sounds like a fucking tree got felled or something it's it's insane um like five of them like five dudes there was five of them (laughs) there was five of them jesus (laughs) there's like two people like standing across the street that just got out of a convenience store watching this whole thing go down yeah no they they are literally right in front of the store that he just walked out like right outside the diner but um yeah we get to see some van damage here where uh, he busts out all sorts of kicks and punches and what's interesting here is that um i'm I'm kind of shocked. Uh, apparently, John John Woo and Van Dam don't have any bad words for each other. Like they seem to have gotten along pretty much like as you would expect on the set, which is shocking because around this time was when Van Dam I think was starting to become kind of an asshole, uh, like kind of a prima donna on the set. Um, and the way he is framed here, the way he shot these action scenes, actually cater to all of his strengths as a martial arts performer because like. Like I can't question Van Damme's martial arts ability, but his fluidity has always been a little bit iffy, honestly. Like his he's he's limber as fuck. Like like in terms of like leaping ability and able like his pliability and stuff, phenomenal. Uh, but in terms of like stringing together long combinations of movements and stuff, he's a guy that needs the editor's help to do his best work. Uh, like that, there's just no two ways about it. Like that's that's truth. Um, and the way John snipes. I mean, even Wesley Snipes had some weaknesses there, but he he was a bit more fluid. Like he could put a few more movements together in a single take than Van Damme usually can. Um, but the way he shot here, like plays to all of his strengths where it shows off his flexibility, like the sound editing, like I said, and the use of slow motion, which is a John Woo trademark, which makes up quite a bit of the runtime of this film, really adds a lot of impact to the hits. But the precision of the editing is such that we never really get to see him in those awkward off balance moments that sometimes you see him get into in some of his more martial arts centric films. So like regardless of who edited this movie, be it Van Damme or Jean Wu, somebody had Van Damme's best intentions in mind. Um, but yeah, this, the sequence is pretty brief, but it's, <laughs> it's pretty fucking brief? brutal. <laughs> This is like fucking 20 minutes long because it's like 90% slow motion. Uh, Also, this is about the time he was being an asshole because you have to be pretty confident and pretty delusional to pull off this haircut. Uh, Also, I think he might have been giving bumps to John Woo. (laughs) That's why. But yeah, the the slow motion early on, I was kind of concerned starting off because I'm like, there's a lot of slow motion in this sequence, like a lot of it. Yeah, I mean, you could argue that maybe John Woo's biggest contribution to 
the global film landscape is uh, the excessive use of slow motion. Uh, the doves are a trademark of his that actually do rear their ugly head in this film. Uh, maybe the gun's akimbo thing, um, although you don't see that that much outside of his filmography, but there were a lot of Hollywood directors who were trying desperately to ape his particular style of framing action. Um, and yeah, the slow-mo was definitely a big part of it, as was the liberal use of shotguns and machine guns. But the shotgun in particular, the way John Woo handles shotguns is that shotguns are, it's like a miracle cannon that whatever you point it at explodes <laughs> like at whatever distance. <laughs> it's, like, it, it's, it's bizarre. It'll make sense if you've ever seen a John Woo movie. But yeah, he beats the shit out of these thugs and we move on. But it looks like... I was going to say it's, it's the frame though to be like a Western like and so much of it like and I think John Woo even there's quotes him saying that because it was his first movie filmed in America like he was trying to cram all of these ideas he had into it because you don't know if you're going to get another opportunity and clearly he's there's a fascination with making westerns hence why this guy is wearing a duster the whole you know for a majority of it and I love the slow motion reveal when he goes to reveal like a gunfighter would a you know something in a holster but it's just his leg and that's what starts off the whole action beat like to me that was just so amazing like and it's one of those things that I don't think it was received as a comedic moment back then, but watching it now in hindsight, like I just thought that was fantastic. I didn't catch that. Uh, I'll, I'll eventually watch this again. I'm pretty sure. Cause it's really goofy, but I'll, I'll have to keep, keep that in mind. Yeah. yeah it, and even that framing of the French quarter too, because it's so run down and shitty looking and dusty, like it, it really does give that sense of kind of like the sh- the confrontation in front of the saloon, you know, from the old, I mean, hell, somebody gets thrown through a, a plate glass window for Christ's sake. So, and, and you know, to, to another point you had mentioned earlier, like kind of the framing of the shot that sets this up with the, with the, the lead woman visiting uh, and getting information about her strange father, you know, that is a different part in New Orleans, like the, the old money air places where it's, you know, big mansions, expansive, beautiful lighting and, you know, vegetation. And then you get to contrast that immediately with like the shitty run now French quarter that so many people associate New Orleans with. Yeah, it's kind of interesting that you mentioned the Western thing because I totally see it. I'm kind of amazed that I didn't notice that. So good on you for bringing that to the fore because so, so much of the early stages of this film feel like the setup for a typical Western. Where it's yeah, like the- you have a, a young lady arriving in town and in the need in need of like a hired gun and he's reluctant because that's usually how that 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 particular situation goes down. And yeah, like him revealing the leg, there may as well have been a tumbleweed blowing by at some point. <laughs> Actually, like now that I'm thinking back, I'm like it, quite a bit of this feels like a Western, uh, like the, the villains even like the way we we go back and forth between them. Yeah, I think you're right, Matt, this quite a bit of it's a western yeah as matt tends to do whenever he's on the show he 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 just like blew blew my mind just like blew open the gates for a whole new discussion that will likely get bulldozed by by me rambling about other bullshit (laughs) i'll find a way to talk about godzilla at some point (laughs) there will be an obscure japanese director that we will get in here no chinese kyle (laughs) i have about three or four that i can mention right now (laughs) but we'll get there eventually but um yeah uh, he beats up these thugs i love the shot of the the one guy getting thrown headfirst into the parking post oof like 
Actually, that's that's something that's really awesome about the way the action scenes are done in this movie. You can tell that the stunt players for this production had a ball. Like, like this is the kind of stuff that like stunt guys really like to do, where it's like it looks like they got the shit kicked out of them, but the way everything's framed is like you get to see them in all of their glory, unobscured, in slow motion, like taking the bumps. It's like, yeah, that's me. That was my contribution to that movie. And that's something that like having read or watched interviews with stunt players in Hollywood and stuff, it's like sometimes that's exactly what they want. <laughs> it's like if I'm going to risk life and limb to do something for your production, at least have the courtesy to like show it in clear view and center frame. And this movie's rife with that. And yeah, some of the bumps that these guys take in this opening scene is pretty fucking tasty. <laughs> but um, he basically saves the gal, uh, Nat. And uh, he gives her her purse back and he just kind of does the man with no name routine. And he just kind of walks off. <laughs> um, uh, but they cross paths later because uh, as, as Kyle had mentioned, he sometimes works on a boat when they let him. Uh, and he goes to the docks uh, to try to get a, a work gig on work boat, but uh, apparently he hasn't paid up his union dues. <laughs> so, he, so he did get, the, he got the lucky draw, but he owes money. So he can't take the job. Um, and it just so happens that Nat is in town with a, like it's Kyle had said again, a huge wad of cash and she's looking for her daddy for her daddy. <laughs> and, uh, she's looking for an extra set of hands to help her do that. Uh, and of course, Jean-Claude Van Damme, uh, portraying the character Chance Boudreau, by the way, um, like I said, like, well, like Matt had said, we need an explanation as to why he has a goofy Belgian accent. In this case, he's from the bayou, uh, basically. <laughs> he's Cajun. Um, but yeah, uh, they cross paths here again on the docks. And uh, this is where the Van Damme editing rears its ugly head yet again uh, in the form of his reveal from behind the like the 50-gallon drums or whatever, Kyle. Did you notice this? I didn't catch that, no. Uh, so he pulls like a Jason Voorhees. So she's like driving off after he says, no, I don't, I, I can't take the job. I'm not going to help you find your daddy. Um, and she's like trying to leave the docks in her car, mind you. And he like looks out and then there's this hard cut to her being stopped in front of like a, a forklift and it's lifting its hull, and he is revealed from behind it, just like a glamour shot of Van Damme looking sexy in his duster. So somehow he teleported to the other side of the loading dock. <laughs> But this shot exists just to show him looking handsome, basically. <laughs> um, but yeah, long story short, he does accept the, the, the job. And we have a, a comedic beat here that I think is a Van Damme-ism where she says, oh, uh, great. I'm, I'm glad you can help me find my dad. Uh, you drive. And he like pauses and he's like, I'm, I, I don't know how to drive. <laughs> I do not have a license, ma'am. <laughs> it's kind of great because it's like, yeah, he is supposed to be homeless. <laughs> like, I, I wouldn't expect he has his papers in order and stuff. Um, but yeah, they go driving uh, through town and uh, we get a little bit of background on him that like his name is Chance, as he says, because the, his mama took one. Um, and then we get introduced to a character. Uh, well, actually, we had a, an introduction earlier. So there's a fella here that is trying his best to help Nat out with finding her dad. Uh, he's part of like the, the homeless community. And uh, he's also ex-military, which put a pin in that. Uh, that's actually an important plot detail. Um, but they have a second meeting here where he uh, basically 
finds some of her dad's belongings in the form of like a, a military knapsack. And uh, sure enough, it has like some mementos in the form of like family photos and stuff confirming that, oh, that did in fact belong to her pop. Uh, but then it also, the same like shopping cart that that bag is housed in also has a bunch of flyers for like a phone sex line or something. Uh, that apparently a lot of the homeless people in the area uh, pass them out uh, as like kind of like on-demand work uh, to get paid basically. And uh, we get an introduction to the fellow who runs that place. And this, this poor soul, <laughs> this, this poor unfortunate soul, like this guy was hired to be like just the, I don't even know what you want to call him, but he's just like supposed to be a really sad, pathetic, very fat, greasy man, <laughs> like greasy in every, in every essence. <laughs> but, he's like, Eckhart mixed with uh, Leo Get. Uh, Leo is that his name? Leo Getz from uh, *Lethal Weapon*. Is that Joe Pesci's character? Yes. Yeah, he's like a combination of those two. He's gross, like uh, like the guy from *Batman*, and then he's just kind of a bitch, like Leo. So uh, he's he's pretty sad, and he's pretty gross. And him smoking the cigar and sweating is just—it really is disgusting. Yeah, he, he's grossly sweating in virtually every scene he's in. Um, and yeah, um, folks at home, uh, Eckhart from Tim Burton's Batman, Batman 89. That, that probably is the best visual parallel I can imagine. So good job there, Kyle. That dude smells like Dijon mustard and B.O. Like you can, <laughs> you can smell him through the screen. <laughs> a guy who like eats a sandwich while smoking a cigarette. <laughs> yeah, he just yeah. kind of pushes the, the butt to one end of his, one corner of his mouth <laughs> and finds a way to get the rest in the rest of his mouth. Um, but yeah, we have this like a very, 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 very John Woo moment here where Arnold Vosloo finally reappears in the film about half an hour in. Um, and he's just like standing in the doorway and he is shooting a look at Van Damme that I don't know how. Kyle, can you try to describe what this look might mean? <laughs> I'm going to fuck fight you later. That's basically what he's what he's saying. With this, he this he look. looks either like he hasn't slept in five days <laughs> or he's like really hungry. <laughs> he looks like if you took Billy Zane and Tom Sizemore and turned them into one person. Yeah, yeah. He's got that unfortunate hairline, the widow's peak. Yeah. And the intensity of like that Sizemore, like, yeah, it's, <laughs> it's not good. Ooh. Yeah. That's, I, I, that's a combination you do not want to run a foul of. That's not, that's not a good combination. <laughs> you shoot uh, that guy in the heart, he's going to find a way to get to you. <laughs> see, I uh, I watched I watched the Mummy kind of in preparation for this because I'm like I I wanted to rewatch the Mummy just because you know long day. I'm like ah, I could just sit down and watch that, but I'm like Arnold Vosloo. I'm like yeah, this is good. I I remember his scene in Blood Diamond, but I'm like there's got to be a better movie, like some better movies he's in. I don't think so. I don't think there are like any good movies with Arnold Vosloo besides The Mummy and Mummy Returns and Blood Diamond. Yeah, that that may be true. Um, I don't know if he had a career in South Africa before he started doing Hollywood stuff. Maybe. And I believe he did. The The posters really look like they're from Australia or South Africa. Uh <laughs> But the man has presence. Like he, like he, he really does have presence. And I wish he was in more good stuff. I think he got kind of typecast into like playing the generic of terrorist <laughs> role. Well, it, in particular, like generic, like Middle Eastern terrorist that was such the rage, like in that in his era of being, you know, a recognizable actor. Like I 
fairly certain he was on 24 for one season at least. <laughs> Playing a terrorist. <laughs> uh, but yeah, Vosloo does have amazing presence even in this movie. Um, and uh, also this is around the time where we have this other character that's farting around here in the first half of the movie. Uh, it's a, uh, what's her face? Cassie Lemons as Detective Mae Mitchell. Um, she plays a part in the early goings because, you know, people are, homeless people are getting murdered <laughs> in New Orleans. You might want to do something about it. And just as she starts to do something about it, she, spoiler alert, she gets offed. <laughs> uh, can, can we, can I ask you guys about that? Because those two characters who are really nice, pretty good people get the, like, two of the worst death. Like, that poor homeless guy just gets shot like it's a squib it's a squibtopia like that dude gets lit up and she gets shot several times and i'm just it just seems strange that they get it so bad in this movie are we trying to are we trying to hate the villains more by killing these people so so brutally that may be the case uh being as the villains don't have a whole lot of screen time i i don't really see a real reason for it logistically like in terms of the edit for the film um it and it's not really a trademark of john woo either although no no maybe that is because i i seem to recall a few instances of supporting characters in his movies getting like really nasty deaths like the killer has uh sydney the character who's always helping jo- uh fat um he he basically does everything you can do to be a good friend and he gets like a horrible fate um, Wind Talkers has the the Code Talker uh, Native American guy, and uh, I don't remember the guy who played his uh, American soldier cohort. Um, the two of them actually had a good relationship. Uh, Christian Slater. Um, the two of them both get brutally murdered in that movie, and they're like they're like both have hearts of gold, unlike Nick Nick Cage and Adam Beach, who kind of like butt heads over everything. Um, so maybe that's a thing in John Woo's filmography that like if you're a good if you're a good person, but you're not the main character, you get kind of a raw deal. Yeah, because that one. Some... Yeah. No, go ahead. No, I was just said the 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 homeless guy gets it really bad. The one that they end up hunting. But go ahead, Matt. No, no, I was just gonna say like the thing you have to remember too, just from the plot standpoint, is like the whole reason her character's there is just to point out the fact that the reason these crimes can be committed in broad daylight, for the most part, is that the police, for the most part, are on strike, and she's one of the rare ones that's actually working through it. To- to try to preserve some sense of order and you know again i think that there's a john woo like went above and beyond with trying to highlight just new orleans as a whole like in particular the french quarter but just that area of the country like he put way more backstory into that than was necessary for an action flick so kind of the excuse to showcase again like an old built government building that's probably been there since you know 1800s you know having an excuse for why, you know, that isn't just, oh, New Orleans is corrupt. Because it's so easy to just blanket and say, oh, New Orleans is corrupt town. That's why you can have manhunter tournaments going on. It's like, no, in this case, like, there's literally no police force available. So that's why crime's big. That's why things are ugly, you know, and the homeless thing, too. Like, you know, because like you say, he's, he's supposed to be a former soldier, and but he has this brutal thing. And there's that huge lead up to that where it's kind of highlighting how, People ignore all these homeless folk who unfortunately are in this situation living on the street, despite all these tourists coming down, throwing money around like crazy in the French Quarter. And he's literally pleading for his life during that whole course of time. And people don't even acknowledge the fact that he's clearly bleeding out. He's not just some guy asking for change. Like they're just so, but that's, again, it's 
synonymous with, you know, kind of those asshole drunk tourists who are just there to party in the quarter and don't want to be bothered with any of the negativity of the land. Yeah. Now that you mention it um, in terms of like details present in the film, um, quite a few of the the shots and there's a lot of there's a lot of crossfades earlier in the film but a lot there's a lot of lingering shots in the first third of the film uh just on images like just imagery of homeless people um just like random close-ups of faces and people looking unhappy and living on the streets and stuff and i think you're right it is meant to plant a seed there that's like maybe keep this in mind as you're watching some of the the fates that unfold for these characters and in particular the the detective uh she she's introduced to us in an empty police station uh celebrating her birthday alone uh and instead of you know passing the buck and like ignoring uh, nat who comes in uh, she actually just like puts <laughs> she she has this like what what kind of pastry is this um she she blows out she doesn't blow out the candle she just like puts it in her in her desk <laughs> instead of in indulging in her you know dessert for her birthday yeah it's a sad single serving it looks like a, maybe a cheesecake with stuff on it i'm not entirely sure but it's super sad yeah and then she puts she puts it in her desk but it's meant to demonstrate that like she takes her job very seriously um even while there's people picketing outside that are you know not exactly doing the same thing um so yeah, there there are elements to this film that like I'm kind of glossing over, but I'm glad I have my brother here to shed light on them because this is not this is not a thoughtless film. Um, I'll just put it that way. There's a lot of intentional things that may seem extraneous on like at a casual glance, but it is it is a it is a film. <laughs> it does have things to say. Um, but what we get from this detective character is a, a coroner's report. Um, indicating that uh, Nat's father, unfortunately, was found uh, burned alive, apparently, or something. He died in a fire, and they identified him via his dental records from his military service days. Uh, so that's unfortunate for her. Uh, but the scene, the, the scene that comes immediately after, very well may be my favorite scene in the whole movie. Honestly, um, it's a, it's a, our uh, our Eckhart esque. Uh, Heavy set gentleman with the bushy mustache asleep at home, and then Arnold Vosloo appears over him and karate chops him in the midsection before throwing him into the wall. Um, and just something about the lighting and the camera movements here, I I really saw John Woo here, and it's such a simple scene, but for some reason it feels it feels right, like it feels really good. Something about the lighting and and the blocking here, where it's. <laughs> it's fucking Lance Henriksen and Arnold Vosloo invading this poor guy's house and beating the shit out of him uh, because they caught wind of the fact that somebody filed a police report about one of their victims. Uh, that would be Nat's father. Um, but there's a there's a moment here that I'm pretty sure was one of those things that the MPAA uh, obviously they didn't pinpoint it as something they wanted cut but i'm pretty sure somebody got wise to the fact that you know maybe cutting off a man's earlobe on screen is something that doesn't need to be there <laughs> yeah and then lars von Schur says hold my pickled herring uh, <laughs> uh yeah he cl- he clips off this ear and i love this line from arnold vosley after they leave i still don't know what's going on in this movie at this point i have no clue what the what the game is uh but arnold vosley says i come back here I'm going to cut me a steak. I'm like, oh, that's a good line. I like that. Yeah, and the precision of the camera movements and the cuts here, like I said, I see John Woo here. And I've seen 
many John Woo films. So I know what I'm talking about. And like, even when Lance Henriksen slugs this guy, like the way the camera pulls back to show the impact, it's like, mm, that was a juicy fucking punch. And it didn't really have to be, but I'm glad it was. And then, like you said, when Arnold Vosloo leaves, the way that the camera like zooms in on the scissors that he slams into the door frame, it's so precise. It's like, yeah, that, I... This is this is why I watch John Woo movies. <laughs> do you do you get that? Um, oh gosh, Tom Cruise Tropic Thunder. Uh, Les Grossman. Whenever it, the key grip gets punched, and he gets that. Mm. Are you like that when you watch these movies? You're like, mm, that was a good hit. I, I am. I actually have a very specific uh, noise I make when I when I'm watching this kind of movie. Um, so when when a certain kind of explosion happens, like. The kinds of explosions that are in 90s action movies usually. Um, and what I mean by that is like big, fiery, like gasoline explosions, like fireball explosions. Ones that um, don't match what just happened. Like exactly. What, yeah. Gotcha. yeah. But whenever I see those, I have a specific noise I make. I go, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I had at least two of those while I was watching those. I was so, I, I was giddy as a schoolboy. Um, uh, my next note after this is a fucking dove. Because uh, <laughs> this is his Stone Cold Steve Austin intro music is when I'm like, oh, here's the dove. <laughs> I don't know the context. Oh, he's in the, the place where uh, the fire was at. Yeah, yeah. When Van Damme's doing his investigation is, is when we get our first dove of many doves. <laughs> but uh, there's some shit that happens in between it, but nothing too. This is important. not the most doves we've seen in a John Woo film. I think Face Off has it beat easily. Even Mission Impossible 2 might have it beat, honestly, because there's, there's I, that like catacomb sequence that has some doves in there. I haven't seen that Mission Impossible. Is that like the worst one? It's the only one that you could call like maybe legitimately bad, honestly. Like all the others are at least good, if not great. As, that's the only one I've ever heard anything negative about. Yeah, it's a uh, it's not good. Um, that's that that is not the John Woo that I I think we all wanted. <laughs> that's that's like all the bad parts of John Woo. Um, spinning wheel kicks on the beach, man. That's <laughs> that's what that that movie gave us. That it gave us. Uh, people fighting via via motorcycles not not like racing each other chase, like using weaponizing motorcycles you know, <laughs> and stuff like he, that yeah does john woo know how does he know how a motorcycle works because he doesn't in this movie no i don't think he learned anything uh from 1993 by the time he got to the year 2000 he was like no that's totally how physics and motorcycles work. i'm sorry i moved over to the next scene Were you did you have anything else you want to say about no the, kyle oh, you take oh, the oh. reins goddamn it i don't want to always be in charge because okay, <laughs> this this scene here so he turns into a detective which does he have any experience as as a cop or is he he's just a vet was he special forces or something he's a Silver Star recipient, and yeah, he was a member of an elite recon unit, I believe. Okay, because tracking is a part of this movie for the villains, but it it doesn't really it's not really clear what he did. But yeah, he's go ahead. He also grew up in the Bayou, so he's got the Cajun sixth sense when it comes to tracking. So yeah, my family been here a long time. Uh, the this scene where the uh, the fellas ambush him and he gets into a fight. Um, he's out of commission. He takes a baseball bat to the knee. I've heard a personal story about a man taking a baseball bat to the knee. He had to have reconstructive surgery and couldn't walk for six months. Van Damme keeps kicking after he takes a baseball bat to the knee. He's a terminator in this. 
yeah uh, he he gets the shit kicked out of him here by two dudes uh, he does fight back but um yeah th- this is one of those scenes that you easily could have like had him not fight back at all but this may have been you know big-headed van damme rearing its ugly head just a little bit like you know if i'm gonna get beat up by a couple of guys i want to get in some licks as well um and this is where we have a weird wipe edit too there's only a handful of these mostly towards the end of the movie but I want to say this was maybe an example of Van Damme editing because they hit him in the head with the bat and then there's this like Star Wars wipe. <laughs> it's like, I'm sure like there is a cut to the movie where he gets the shit kicked out of him for like another two minutes or something. He's like, no, got, got it. <laughs> no more of that. <laughs> um, but yeah, he heads to the police station after that. Uh, basically, he discovers that... Um, her daddy, uh, Nat's father, uh, his dog tag is like present at the at like a burned building and it has some sort of puncture in it, which indicates he was killed not via the fire, but likely by something else. Um, and basically he reports his findings to the police. Um, and parallel to that, um, we discover that the very kind gentleman that was trying to help Nat find her dad uh, is kind of hooked up with Eckhart um, and is accepting the same deal that we can assume was offered to her dad. But in between that, um, we also have this really lengthy sequence, actually, like detailing how the business end of things goes down with this uh, human manhunt uh, deal, this operation that Lance Henriksen and Arnold Vosloo have set up. This is very self-indulgent editing and filmmaking here where Lance Henriksen is like playing a lovely piece on his piano. He has his fucking penguin shoes on (laughs) in his Bayou mansion. (laughs) Is this, is this the house from Forrest Gump or the Patriot? I I think it's the house from the Patriot. I want to say it's from the Patriot. Yeah, definitely. Uh, I still didn't know what was going on after like listening to this conversation. It took me a while. I'm like, okay, are they hunting people for sport? And finally, it's made clear. Thank you for pointing out the shoes, though. I thought that was very odd. I'm like, what the fuck is with those shoes? <laughs> I feel stupid. Go ahead. I was just going to say two things I have to say about that sequence that I absolutely adore. I, I think the guy who plays the, the gentleman with the money who's signing up for this weekend warrior camp is brilliant. <laughs> just because he has this like level of just like cluelessness that's just like, perfect for some dipshit that has hundreds of thousands of dollars and would have no qualms of murdering a poor homeless person for sport. Um, And the other thing too, it warrants mentioning, uh, Trevor had alluded to it, but it is based off the the classic short story, The Most Dangerous Game from 1924, which is funny to think about just that like, because it's a short story, it kind of gets viewed through a lens of like, oh, it's a well thought out piece. But in actuality, that was just an action pulled from an era before we had shitty Van Damme movies and stuff like that. Hence why it's been redone to death. Um, And so, yeah, here it becomes very, very apparent paying homage to that of just being like set up. It's like, oh, here's the full explanation of like how we're, we have wealthy people, privileged people hunting for, for sport essentially. Yeah. And I would, oh, go ahead, go. I was just say, I always remember from that story that the, the guy that hunts them, he smokes very fragrant cigarettes. Like the guy that w- was being hunted, he's like, yeah, I recognize the smell of his cigarettes. And uh, Lance Henderson, uh, maybe because he's most likely a smoker in real life, is smoking in this movie. But you only really see him smoking during this scene, which I thought was kind of interesting. 
Yeah, smoking in the home, by the way. <laughs> also, I I don't know, is, Kyle, is this common practice? You you have a glass of liquor and you put it on the floor? <laughs> uh, it depends on what time of night or early morning it is. I, I mean, it's say. clearly the daytime in the scene, like, like yeah. fucking 9 a.m. or some shit. <laughs> He's a villain, so it's, you know, they can just kind of do whatever they want. Yeah, it, it, I just thought it was a very eccentric acting choice where Lance Hendrickson just takes like a little sip of his glass and then he places it gingerly on the floor. I'm like, no coasters, no, no coffee table? <laughs> that's, a co- that's a coaster house. That's for sure a coaster house. <laughs> no, wait! <laughs> That might be a New Orleans thing, though, too, because I feel like it's one of those things that people there are just conditioned to drink all day in a limited capacity. So to that point, you don't think about coasters anymore. You're just so accustomed to always having a beverage on hand. Essentially, you're Julian from Trailer Park Boys. They don't have open carry law. So like like you can just go from bar to bar with a drink or just like you can walk around with a drink. It's, It's not a big deal. Ah, so you have you have walking liquor. <laughs> gotcha. <laughs> I'm just gonna take my liquor for a walk <laughs> because I can. <laughs> but um, yeah, the logistics of how this shit goes down is laid out to us here. Um, what I had mentioned about the military service thing—that's part of the ethics, I guess, behind the operation—is that all of the people they select for this, they seem to be volunteers. Uh, and they always have like combat veteran experience. Um, so that's supposed to be like, oh, they have a fighting chance, even though we have tons of guys on dirt bikes and lots and lots and lots of guns. They certainly have a chance. It's, it's actually really interesting storytelling. I read on IMDb that Lance Hendrickson was really excited to work with John Woo because he's like, yeah, he's a really interesting filmmaker and the like the philosophy he throws into his film. And I'm like, I don't know what the fuck you're talking about, dude. But now that you mention it, Matt, I'm like, yeah, actually, I can kind of see it now. And it's an interesting way to comment on like homelessness in America and talk about these guys being hunted. And like, oh, no, no, they're, they're veterans. Like they have a, like they at least have a chance, like trying to um justify or at least make them not feel as bad about doing it and it's an interesting way to to tell a story i think too like you had mentioned like how it's so drawn out like that opening sequence and i think like that was part of it too or even like the second gentleman who is about to meet his untimely death where it does show them to be somewhat competent throughout it like which not only boosts van damme's you know cachet that much more because he's like this invincible force in comparison but also to suggest that, like, this isn't just some guy who's like, hey, cut him loose and see what happens, which, unfortunately, we've seen a lot more of those, I think, lately when you see these these variants of the most dangerous game. Uh, what was the, the controversial one? The Hunt was probably the most recent one I can yeah, think of. Yeah, yeah, That's uh, Hillary Swank and that gal from that Glow series on Netflix. Uh, the blonde one or not blonde one? The blonde one. Uh, Britta. I believe that's Britta from Community. Um, isn't there one with, uh, is it Gary Busey and Ice-T or maybe Rucker Yeah, Surviving Howard? the Game, I think. Surviving that came out game. like a year after this, I want to say. And yeah. yeah, probably a bit closer to the book than this. I but. believe he was homeless in that movie as well. Yep. Hmm. Yeah, it's definitely a connecting thread. And it's definitely, like I said, this is not a thoughtlessly constructed film. It's definitely there if, if you pay attention at all. Um, but... Uh, yeah, also another thing about the operation that is mentioned numerous times, not just in the scene, but I think it's mentioned here for the first time, is that uh, they're here in New Orleans because the the environment is well-suited for it. Um, the conditions are right, essentially. The police are on strike. There's a you know 
a lot of homeless people that nobody gives a shit about. Um, and they basically know it that if the police get wise to them as they're starting to become, uh, they can just pull up stakes and relocate to a different part of the world. In fact, Lance Henriksen expresses uh, giddy excitement at the prospect of moving to Eastern Europe because he's like, they really don't give a shit over there. <laughs> um, but um, basically, uh, it's interesting because uh, this is kind of like a, a catalyst in the plot here because because the police investigation is going on, because we have one good cop in this particular town in this particular moment, um, they're not so arrogant as to believe that they can escape, you know, judgment at some point. So basically they have it in their minds that yes, we're accepting this client here in new Orleans, but this is the last hunt before we pull up stakes and leave because it's just that the climate's wrong now. Um, and we also learn in the scene that they have, they have the coroner in their pocket. Um, so they're kind of squeezing him to, you know, shape up and fly right. Uh, Cause uh, they're kind of blaming him essentially for like evidence getting out and the detective is getting steadily closer to pinpointing exactly what's going on in town. And we have another lovely uh, John Woo sequence where uh, Lance Henriksen actually just gets fed up with the coroner and uh, once again, just helps himself to walking into this guy's house. He just appears in the guy's house. And like I said, the lighting here, actually the lighting here kind of reminded me of like home alone for some reason, <laughs> something about the construction of the house or something. But um, basically we have like a suspenseful sequence where it looks like he's going to go at it with this doctor guy with a, a letter opener. Um, but it's just a, it's just a threat. Uh, it's not the actual killing blow or anything. Uh, and then there's a knock at the door <laughs> and he's like, answer it <laughs> like like don't worry about me just answer it and i uh, we we get a, a lovely moment that i think actually is lifted from john woo's own filmography if not another hong kong filmmaker's filmography it's a uh, the classic look in the peephole and then get blasted through the eyeball moment <laughs> um yeah arnold Vosloo is on the other side of the door and we get a camera angle looking directly through the peephole of the door and kaboom uh, we get to see the back of this man's head get blown out it's pretty tasty and then because our villains are comic book villains, they, they have a little chuckle at the prospect of, like I said, relocating, uh, which brings us to the second hunt in the film after the prologue, which is uh, from the uh, former like military guy that was trying to help Nat earlier in the film. Apparently he got desperate to the point that he needs cash right fucking now. So he, like I said, he, he accepted a deal from Eckhart and uh, Kyle or Matt, you want to run down like the setup here? They basically give him a proposition. Is like, hey, how would you like to make ten thousand dollars? This is the job. Basically, you get this ten grand put around your belt if you can get make it to the river. Which we thinking back, like that's what the guy in the first scene was trying to do is make it to the river. And he's like, you don't really have an option. Um, we're gonna hunt you, so you should probably go ahead and get going. Um, and I could like the the guy that's hunting him. Uh, this is the same guy from the house, right? That was him. Yeah, the yeah, dipshit yeah. with the, the big yeah. advanced rifle. Yeah. Yeah. And, and he's about to just shoot him, like, right there. He's like, eh, 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 eh. we're going to give him a five-minute head start, which they don't do, by the way. Like, I figured this makes sense now because we have guys in dirt bikes following him so you know where he's going. That makes sense. So that first scene, I'm like, oh, that's what the dirt bikes were doing. They're keeping tabs on him. And he beelines it straight for uh, – a new orleans uh cemetery which side note i believe nicholas cage has already picked out his plot in new orleans 
And I, is it a pyramid or yeah, (laughs) it's like a multi-million, it's like a couple of million dollars, I think for a lot of, that's fucking insane. Well, you got to remember, yeah, because the land is pricey for to actually be buried in the ground there because it has to be on areas that won't get uh, flooded. Mm -hmm. So yeah, it's, you pay a premium if you want to go in the ground in New Orleans. Yeah. (laughs) Um, but yes, the we're running through this uh, cemetery. This was kind of a fun sequence, but uh, oh yeah, go ahead. You want oh, to I was something? just gonna say, um, much like some of the movies uh, you've talked about before, Kyle, um, I saw this sequence in isolation uh, long before I ever saw this movie, um, and I I was bothered by it when I was a kid because something about this actor's face and his acting or something like you feel empathy for him. Like like I said, I was flipping channels as a kid or something. And I just stumbled across whatever this was. I didn't even know it was a Van Damme movie. And something about him, you like, you instantly feel for this guy. And the drawn out process in which he meets his end, uh, like, I, I was disturbed by it. I didn't like it at the time. And coming back to it, it's like, you know, it's a goofy John Woo movie. But um, it's pretty brutal, honestly, um, because it, it, it's not, a, it's like death by a thousand cuts. And when he's finally cornered, you see it painted on his face. So it's like he, yeah that's it um and as this is a scene that we we've kind of been talking about earlier um this is the part where he's chased through the cemetery and uh by the way lance henriksen refers to those guys on the dirt bikes as his dogs um, which kind of mirrors that of like hunting practices i don't know if those are antiquated i'm sure they still do that Um, oh they still do that's still big but you know using hunting dogs and stuff um so may as well be you know guys on dirt bikes with fucking pneumatic crossbows <laughs> that, yeah that makes so much more sense that's yes, the same as a dog <laughs> but um they chase him through the cemetery and uh he actually manages to like wrestle away the weapon uh from the guy who's hunting him and he blasts the shit out of him <laughs> i've got a good solid uh candle tons of candles by the way uh <laughs> yeah i like candles and graves got the job fuck you like he gets this dude and he shoots him point blank it's pretty nice it's amazing and like i said that's why i love this dipshit guy so much because you're just picturing him like he runs like a shitty used car lot and like just had a fat payday and he's gonna do something with that money and he gets it so bad it's great yeah, and then on, it, yeah, yeah that's exactly what just Go ahead. I took it from you. Go ahead. No, no. I was just going to say, and then you have Lance Henriksen rush up to him, basically cuss him out for being a dipshit and for not following the rules and then shooting him point blank with his advanced handgun that shoots what? Rifle rounds? (laughs) Yeah, one rifle round. It's pretty badass. It's like, you dumb fuck. Boom. Just shoots him. It's pretty nice. It's awesome. (laughs) Go ahead. What does he say to him when he's like, the guy's about to shoot him like point blank. He's He's like, this isn't Bahrain or he says something. It's not Beirut, is what Beirut. That's what it is. Um, But yeah, it's it's awesome because like um, this is kind of a a local joke, so folks not from Washington might not get this. But he reminds me of the Empire Glass guy, (laughs) who was famously found dead in a hotel room with a hooker and a bag of coke or something. But um, actually, Matt, I'm glad you pointed out how how fucking derpy this guy is because. I don't you I'm guessing you haven't seen it. A uh, Hard Target 2. Um, I've seen half of it. Okay, Hard Target 2 is not half bad actually. It's a it's like a higher budgeted Scott Adkins movie. 
I found a way to bring up Scott Adkins, Kyle. <laughs> um, uh, it's actually not half bad. Um, and it takes place in Thailand. But uh, something that they updated there was they paid more attention to the people doing the hunting because they have like a hunting party. And they actually have a they have a play on that where like there's a, a father and a son and they come across as just like like Mark Zuckerberg types or something uh, who are completely ill-suited to doing any actually like outdoorsy kind of shit. It, it actually is a good gag. It makes sense. It's a logical progression from this one. Um, but yeah, this poor soul, uh, he escapes the cemetery after murdering the fuck out of that guy. <laughs> um, and by the way, uh, Lance Henriksen's pistol is, is a uh, insider reference within John Woo's own filmography. Um, that, that like a, uh, single shot loading pistol um a character from hard boiled like one of the chief antagonists of that film uses the exact same handgun um and it's it seems to be a thing that maybe john woo likes i actually like that about um the way john woo uses his weapons in his movies he's very big on associating uh the character of the weapon with the character on the screen so like caster troy and his golden colt 45s for instance and like John Travolta in a in Broken Arrow, that character had like an M ninety three R, so it's just like this handgun just goes. <laughs> like, just I feel like, like I feel like the pneumatic crossbow actually too uh, is only associated actually with the main guy who was paying for the hunt in the first one. Exactly, yeah. Uh, he's very big on that, like associating, like making a connection between what the person's carrying and who that person is. Um, it's it's really elemental stuff, but it's, it's attention to detail in an area that I think maybe gets overlooked sometimes. Um, but yeah, uh, long story short, um, after he escapes the cemetery, uh, this guy, he gets to the French Quarter area and we have this extended sequence of him. He's bloodied, by the way. He's been shot a couple of times at this point. And he's basically calling for help from whoever is nearby and they're like shutting, literally shutting doors in his face. Um, and Ted Raimi has some choice words for him. Uh, this is where we get Ted Raimi, big as life and twice as ugly, center frame and everything. <laughs> it's like, oh, hey. oh hi, Ted. <laughs> I just said, Ted. I, like, hey, he is. Uh, I had read the Raimi thing before, but had I not, I would have figured it out pretty quick at this point. I'm like, Ted Raimi, Sam somewhere. Where's he at? He's <laughs> hey, where are you hiding him? Where's your brother? Um, I wanted to say something about Caster Troy. Uh, was it that he's a douchebag? because of his gold guns because that's a pretty douchebag move and he's a douchebag in that movie caster so. troy is a douchebag yeah, <laughs> he is a douchebag yeah, uh, many things but he is mostly a douchebag yeah. dude i i was like i was i was angry at this guy watching this because i'm like dude just keep walking just keep going like he just kind of stops walking i'm like just keep moving yeah it there's some like artistic license here where it's like he's exhausted his options and he's he's cornered without physically being cornered um and somehow that makes it even worse in some ways mm -hmm. um because just the eye contact between him and lance Henriksen and arnold Vosloo, it's just like he's resigned to his fate and he's he's actually standing in a crowd of people and they just unload on him and he gets the ed 209 treatment I've only seen one other. Yeah, he does get the Ed 209 treatment. I've only seen one other person not give a fuck about shooting someone in broad, like just right in the middle of the street. And that was Denzel, an American gangster. Like he's the only other person that's just like, yep, I did that. Arnold Vosley, like after they shoot him, he just kind of crouches down. He's like making eye contact and looking around at the people that are on the street. I'm like, 
I'm going to be gone tomorrow, guys. It's not a big deal. <laughs> yeah, and, and that's where, it, even though it's above and beyond for a shitty action movie, but the fact that they had to highlight the police strike and the fact that there's really no one available to call, and it doesn't stop people from going out and partying, but that's what's kind of just made it to where they don't give a shit and they'll just push it even further. Matt, you can't keep a good drunk down. <laughs> um, but after that really intense sequence where we got to see a poor soul get executed in the streets of the French Quarter, <clears throat> it's now broad daylight again. And for some reason, we're back with the Jake, not Jake, but the fat man. <laughs> and uh, he's trying to skip town. Uh, but because he knows about their operation, I'm guessing Arnold Fosley is trying to check that particular box and uh, he corners him in his vehicle and uh, we get a juicy fucking headshot here. Uh, so Arnold Vosley doesn't even bend over. He just shoves the shotgun through the guy's like car door and puts the barrel up against his head. And we, it's like a, this wasn't a yeah moment for me, but it was like, Oh fuck. Uh, because we get a, a lovely pyrotechnic here in the form of this man's windshield exploding <laughs> when this he pulls car was- the trigger. <laughs> This car wasn't going to start, Trevor. I'm almost positive this car was not going to start. <laughs> it's a shit box, yeah. yeah. Um, but yeah, he he blows this guy's head off. This poor guy who, by the way, I forgot to mention, uh, gets interrogated and somewhat tortured by Van Damme uh, in between getting the shit kicked out of him and having his ear cut off. <laughs> so this guy just could not catch a break. And now he's dead, though, so maybe he's moved on to better things. But um it just so happens that uh, Van Damme and the Scooby squad in the form of his two gal pals uh, were just in the middle of looking for that guy uh, because they had a way of maybe pointing the finger towards this manhunt operation in town. Um, and Arnold Fossilou is still there. Uh, and they bear witness to the fact that, oh, shit, Fat Man's head is missing. That's not good. And then a gigantic fucking shootout happens in, in broad fucking daylight. Uh, I was like, not expecting this. Yeah, it it, it escalates very quickly. <laughs> and there, uh, go ahead. There's no shortage of dudes on dirt bikes. Like they just come out of fucking nowhere. I don't think they were associated with the operation. I, I just think <laughs> they, they were some locals. Shit. I think they were just locals who had dirt bikes, and they're like, "Oh shit, it's going down." <laughs> they just got to run in with an Uzi, just waiting for some shit to pop off. Yeah, I can see that. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, uh, this thus begins uh, the John Wooism, where uh, anybody who gets shot in a John Woo movie cannot be shot once. They must be shot many times. <laughs> it's like that, that's a rule in a John Woo movie. You gotta get shot like thirty times before you hit Dude, the floor. I was disappointed. I I like perked up when I saw it happening, like, like out of my chair. The car jump, like we get like the first part of the car jump. But he doesn't even really roll on it or anything. Like, he just jumps by the car. Yeah, he just kind of lands on the trunk. (laughs) (laughs) Like, that was so shit. Like, it was right there. You had it. Yeah, it's not quite, you know, classic hood jumping. (laughs) He just kind of, like, eases onto the trunk of the car. (laughs) Uh, No, I was just going to say, like, this is where it's that fascinating switch where we had talked about Van Damme being, like, a fighting movie actor. And so many of the ones that really like pushed him to success were ones where you could kind of hide the deficits of his, his abilities with, you know, somebody that he was opposing who could really sell whatever movie he was doing. But because this is more of a John Woo action movie, you know, there's gunplay involved and, and you really do see some of those parts where it's like, eh, he's really good if you want to do a splits or like a high kick, but <laughs> anything out of that realm, it gets a little dicey. Like I- 
I think he's better at handling a gun than contemporary Steven Seagal. Just watch a trailer for one of his movies. He's got the gun, like, on top of his shoulder. It's pretty stupid. Uh, but I was going to say, do you think, like, how many bruises do you think John Travolta and Nick Cage had doing face-off? Because doing those, like, jumping to the side, double-handed uh, shots, I was expecting that in this, but we don't, we don't quite get it here. We get it mostly. It's most, actually, most of the action is relegated to the third act of this movie. This is actually the cutoff point where the dialogue kind of just drops off and it turns into just, like, oh, yeah. kaboom, yeah. the movie. Um, but yeah, when it comes to the classic aerial dives, guns akimbo, we don't we don't very we don't get very much guns akimbo action in this movie. We do get a handful of dives, but it's mostly relegated to the third act. Um, but yeah, you could almost joke that uh, Jean Claude Van Damme's stunt double has equal screen time uh, to him in this film because the majority yeah. of the stuff he's doing is done by someone wearing a, a mullet wig that <laughs> that looks curiously different from Van Damme. Um, and like I said, he doesn't really talk in the second half of this movie, honestly. So it's like, I don't even know if like if you could call this his movie anymore. <laughs> but I don't think it was supposed to be in the first place. Yeah, I, if you had Kurt Russell, I think you would have had a, a radically different movie, honestly. Because like I can't think of any movies with this this amount and this category of action in uh, Kurt Russell's filmography. Even like Tango and Cash is largely a dialogue-centric, like, plot, oddly plot-heavy movie. <laughs> but Kurt Russell can do, because uh, he can do kind of dialogue, dialogue-less uh, movies, because Escape from New York, he doesn't really talk that much in that movie. Yeah, it says, like, 20 words in Soldier. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, no, he, he can certainly do that. It's just when I think of what he was up to in 1993, like, I, I don't think that's why you would hire Kurt Russell. Like, like I, I no. think you would find a way to tailor the script more for him than Van Damme. Um, and remember, this is when Van Damme was doing stuff like Street Fighter, where like every line is 80 yard when he's speaking, which is not very often. <laughs> Did you catch the delicious piece of 80 yard later uh, when we get when we meet Wilford Brimley? Uh, you'll have to bring it to my attention because I Ooh. think I may have missed it. Oh, it's it's not from Van Damme. I'll tell you that much. <laughs> Uh, but we yeah. can't skip over the snake sequence though first no, 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 in order no, no. to well, get that. Yeah. Yeah. No, absolutely. That that's a classic. That's definitely going to be a, a still that I use to promote this episode. <laughs> Just remind me when the expendables get to the compound that to, to remind you of the ADR. Okay. I'll try my best. But um yeah, this action sequence goes on and on and on, by the way. Um, it's it, super long. Yeah. Uh poor detective lady gets shot to shit. And like I said, she has to get killed three times before she hits the ground. Like she gets shot, she gets winged, she gets up, she keeps on shooting, she gets <laughs> shot again. Uh, she gets shot a few more times. Van Damme takes her gun from her in an oddly balletic fashion because John Woo. <laughs> even even taking the gun from a dying person has to be done in a whimsical fashion um but yeah she finally dies but not not before like fucking like <laughs> she's like curled up in a ball on the floor like twitching it's so gruesome and they fucking leave her there because and they the, fucking the, leave her there because <laughs> the the next the next beat is the uh the motorcycle chase which is super fun uh th- this part was pretty fun but yeah i like i said we can't just leave her here it's just like she'll be fine <laughs> like dude i'm with her like maybe what i think that she should probably stay there you don't need her for this next part no actually there's no reason for her to be there I felt <laughs> so bad i felt so bad for this cop lady yeah was she, she, de- was she dead at this point 
Yeah. She, okay. I think he checked her pulse or something, but it, okay. it's totally like one of those things where it's like, that's really, that's, that's really, really bad. <laughs> like, yeah. That's really fucked up, man. Um, but yeah, crazy motorcycle stunts follow. Uh, this is what Kyle was alluding to when he said that John Woo doesn't know how motorcycles work <laughs> because we get all sorts of shenanigans where uh, he like uses her. So Nat is sitting like on, behind him on the motorcycle and he has her hold the bars of it and he stands up and unloads a submachine gun and then casually like reholsters it and like goes back to driving. Uh, we get him using a motorcycle as like a chariot <laughs> and he like plays chicken with a car uh, he flips over lose. a car. Yeah, and he, yeah, you would lose that, but he goes over the car and then he does a tactical roll after hitting the fucking pavement. <laughs> I think this was like the other guys watching him do this. It's like there wasn't even an awning. They just jumped 20 stories. Like, this is like he's riding a motorcycle straight towards a car. I'm like, well, he's about to fucking die. <laughs> Unless he's got a plan here. Is he going to jump through the sunroof or something? But no, every, you know, every bone in this man's body would be utterly shattered. Is, dead <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah he, he just fires a handful of rounds at the car which explodes the gas tank of his motorcycle which blows up both the car and the motorcycle it is very much a 90s like over the top ridiculous action sequence um, there's a particular f- flavor like a distinction between 80s and 90s action that I can't exactly put my finger on um, but but this is what I think of when I think of stupid 90s action, where it's like it always caters more to spectacle than outright violence, if if that makes sense, I guess. I was just say we were trying we, I'm trying to think of like this versus commando. It's like it's the same thing where the goons can't hit shit even at point blank range, but it's pretty just standard. We're just shooting at each other. This is more high concept, like we're really going wacky with this. And I think that's the difference, yeah. Yeah, it's hard. It's really hard for me to pin down the exact details of the differences in the era. But this is a very good example of when I, what I think of when I think of like 90s action typified. But um, long story short, uh, both uh, Chance, Chance and uh, Nat escape via a passing train uh, below them. Uh, and they ride off into the sunset and they sca- escape into the swamplands. And uh, this is where we discover that Arnold Vosloo has magical tracking abilities uh, where he can, he can look at poop in a swamp <laughs> and determine exactly where the person is. <laughs> it's like the first place they stop. It's like we don't even see them stopping at a few places. It's just like, I think they're here. Like now we're in the Yellow King country uh, where, yeah, he just, oh, here's the track. I like, I like <laughs> how uh, Lance Hendrickson's character takes this as a business opportunity. Uh, not only is he going to hire dudes, he's not hiring dudes to do this. He's getting clients in on the hunt and he's raised the prices. Um, did you see who all these guys were? I saw who one of them was in particular. That's uh, he, the ADR. That's the ADR. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I know exactly what you're talking about now. Yeah. Um, but yes, I think we're getting close to the snake scene though. Yeah. In is... fact, we're right there. So Matt, uh, you want to walk us through this uh, legendary uh, puppet snake moment? <laughs> I mean, they're going through the bayou, which they happen to be in the most clear area of the New Orleans bayou you're ever going to see. And all of a sudden Nat is complaining about how they don't have a trail to follow. Again, like middle of the, super deep by you but whatever so in the midst of complaining they have a bit of a moment 
where essentially Chance asks her, do you trust me? And it looks like he's going to lean in for the kiss. And he's asking her to close her eyes. And she's really weirded out by it because nothing would suggest that they would have this. But it's also a 90s action movie. So obviously, if there's a man and a woman, they have to be love interests. So she closes her eyes and she's expecting him to kiss her. And all of a sudden, he reaches behind her and grabs this snake that apparently had been slithering up her. And he didn't say shit about this whole time that he's going through this dramatic sequence with her. He then grabs the snake, punches it in the face, and then bites off the rattle. The, the, I don't even know if rattlesnakes exist in New Orleans, but I don't that's either, honestly. Here or there. <laughs> I'm going to say they probably do have poisonous snakes, but I'm... They definitely uh, maybe, have poisonous snakes. <laughs> maybe east, I would say maybe uh, western Louisiana, getting closer to that side, you might have rattlesnakes. So it is possible. Regardless, a sequence of him punching a puppet snake in the face and then instantly biting off the rattle is, you know, has been memed to death now, but it's still amazing. Oh, yeah. It's no. very, very creative. Very creative. <laughs> it's very creative. One would what would even say it's a little absent-minded, but um, uh, basically the reason he bites off the rattle is that uh, he replaces the snake. He puts it back in its hiding spot in the branches. I don't know how many snakes live in the trees. Um, I know they do, but like when I think rattlesnake, I think ground. But Dude. I have to tell you, so uh, there's a big dog park over on the east side of, like, towards Bellevue. I think it's Magnuson. I think that's what it's called. So it's a huge dog park. We're walking through there one day. It's just been raining. It's summer, you know. And uh, kind of on the, on the edge of the dog park, there is, like, kind of a trail that goes along the trees. So there's this little wooden bridge uh, next to the water, and we're walking and as we're walking, people are like maybe 10 feet in front of us. A fucking snake drops from the branch and hits this lady on the back of the head, like just right behind. And I mean, obviously, she's just like, what was that? And looks down and, ah! and just freaks out. And I'm like, my girlfriend and I both stop. I'm like, holy shit, that could have been us. Like that could have been traumatizing if that snake would have fallen on my head. So Trevor, snakes hang out in trees. <laughs> <laughs> okay, lesson learned. Um, but yeah, he puts the snake back there to serve as a trap uh, for uh, Lance Henriksen's uh, goon squad. Um, one of these poor souls gets fucking bit in the face. And then uh, I guess they decide they didn't get enough play out of that that puppet snake. Um, so we get Lance Henriksen blowing its head up <laughs> just because we could, I guess. Um, so you mean you decided to keep that in after all those cuts that were mandated by, by the studio? You needed to have the head explode? Um but yeah, that brings us to Uncle Duvet, <laughs> who is an entirely pointless character <laughs> played by Wilford Brimley, who is, you know, a beloved actor. I, I, I brighten up every time I see him on the screen, but it's like, why are you here? <laughs> He's like a cartoon character prospector. Like, he really is animated. This is the most... I only have like one movie I've seen him in and that's the thing. So I just know him from that performance. And then here I'm like, he is goofy in this. <laughs> also, he is great. He has a like excellent facial hair distribution. Like he's got a real, real man's beard. It's, it's fantastic. Yeah. He's got the beard and the Teddy Roosevelt mustache. Um, I, I can't speak for Teddy Roosevelt's hairline. I, I want to say that maybe they were, even there but um yeah it, it, this character is just it comes out of left field he's he has so little screen time that's like i don't really know why this is here 
uh, other than to give an excuse for Chance Boudreaux like acquiring a shotgun. Like it's not even like a traditional action movie thing where it's like he has a gun shed, much much like John Matrix and Commando or something. It's like no, he literally just has a nickel-plated shotgun that his uncle Duvet has kept for him over the years. Um, and then he, he, he is present for most of the action scenes moving forward, but he has very little input. Matt, I, do, you, do you have an explanation? I, it reminds me so much of Diane Lane in the Superman movie. Play, like, it's like you take an actor who clearly has some talent and you just like tell them, hey, we want you to play a cartoon stereotype of this region of America. And they just take it too far to a level where it just is so goofy and so weird that it distracts from the whole thing when it could have been any forgettable actor and it would have served just as much of a purpose. I mean, the whole reason he's there is, I think, twofold. The one being, again, we're highlighting areas that are synonymous with New Orleans. Like, we've seen the graveyard, we've seen French Quarter, now we're seeing the true bayou, you know. We'll see Mardi Gras stuff later. Yeah, uh, and then on top of that, it's, again, to remind the audience that, you know, Chance is a true old country, you know, Cajun boy, grew up in this area, and that's why he tracks so well, and that's why he is able to, you know, do everything he is he handles weapons so well apparently because he had to hunt for food and the deep deep brush so it's ridiculous it's goofy but seeing Wilford Brimley riding off from an explosion on horseback is a thing of beauty and I will always laugh at that sequence I was watching that I'm like that's him like he's really riding that horse yeah I I bet that was fun for him honestly like that that's stuff that sometimes actors are disallowed from doing that you know maybe working with john woo it's like a it's like a good excuse to do that shit like like lance henriksen gets to do a full body fire gag in this movie i'm sure he i'm sure he was just like fuck yes let's do that i mean not not everybody stuntman or or no can put that on their resume as something they've done and you know wilford brimley gets to live on forever as as a fucking meme (laughs) as the diabetes meme (laughs) he got to ride away from a fiery explosion that's not something every actor has done in their career i actually that's how i have him written down i have snake on the hunt diabetes dynamite (laughs) (laughs) yeah that's basically the scene um so kyle uh during this scene is when they invade uh, Uncle Duvet's uh, his moonshine operation and his his shed. Uh, yeah, and it, it, it gets blowed up. But uh, one of the people who's involved here. So, like I said, there's a there is a goon squad at work here. However, the most prominent member of the goon squad uh, is the one to kick down the door, and he has one line of dialogue. And and who was this gentleman, Kyle? Yeah, this is Sven Oli Thorson. Uh, they tried to get the drop on old Reggie Ledoux, but uh, <laughs> Reggie Ledoux got the best of them. He kicks down this door, and I'm like, he's, uh, he says, like, they're not here. Like, he says, like, four words. I'm like, wait a minute. And I double-checked. I'm like, I swear to God that was Sven Oli Thorson. I'm like, I went back through the, through the cast. I'm like, I didn't even need to check that. I'm like, oh, that's him. I'm like, oh, man, did they fucking ADR that shit? Because that man cannot – he cannot hide his accent, I'm assuming, and that's probably why he never talks. Was he Arnold Stuntman? Is that how he knew him? I think they were both bodybuilders, like they were contemporaries. 
um, because I do know that he knew Sven prior to Conan the Barbarian. And I think that was like, what, 82 or so. Um, so they probably knew each other through bodybuilding. And I know Sven has a long storied career as a stunt player. Um, I wouldn't be surprised if he was a stand-in or a double for him at some point. But well, I didn't realize how big he was when he was standing next to these guys. Like, I knew he was like a, like a big fella, but like standing the rest of these guys, like he fucking towers over these dudes. Yeah, he stands out. And I, th- I think his wardrobe and the stogie that they put in his mouth is a direct nod to Arnold. Um, okay. Because, you know, at, at this point in 1993, Van Damme was probably being viewed as a rival to Arnold, uh, certainly. Um, <laughs> seeing Sven with a big old cigar in his mouth for every scene, it's like, there's a reason that's there. And when we get to his ultimate fate in this movie, we, we do have that revealed, but it looks so out of place and awkward. And he has that really loud shirt that seems so contrary to what you would expect from Sven as a human being, not, not, as this character, but just as a person, I don't think Sven's into loud, garish colors. He strikes me as a sweater guy. <laughs> he's an earth. He's an earth tone kind of fella. Yeah. Uh, do you think that uh, Arnold saw this and uh, Sven was not invited over for Thanksgiving that year? Like he was that year, of- probably. <laughs> <laughs> Fuck you, Sven. <laughs> You're playing with the enemy. <laughs> you go over to Jean. You go over to Jean's for a Thanksgiving, motherfucker. <laughs> probably send him an angry christmas card (laughs) (laughs) fuck you asshole your arms are looking small (laughs) yeah for real (laughs) 22 inches puny (laughs) tell Um, jesse's a fucking loser too (laughs) (laughs) um but yeah long story short uh uncle duvet uh he has a bow and arrow that he makes use of for the remainder of this film and i i wish i had written down or had the ability to parse the French that comes out of his mouth because his battle cry is <laughs> like, like he, he's, it's this close to farmer Fran. It's basically <laughs> <"Dischiodo."> <laughs> <"Dischiodo."> <laughs> Yeah. They, uh, he has to announce that he is attacking them. So he shoots an arrow that causes an explosion. And then we get the diabetes moment. But yeah, Sven Oli Thorson, his one line in the mo- in the movie is totally ADR'd by someone with a very flat American affect. I think it was Harrison English. Ford. Yeah, it's like we, we called in Harrison Ford for one line of ADR. Um, and they even made sure to like frame it. So like he's he's in like profile facing away from the camera kind of. So you, you, it's good. I like, I legit thought it was the dude saying it in the scene. Dude, the guy who's saying it is a hundred pounds lighter than Sven. I'm sorry. <laughs> like you can tell, <laughs> but um, yeah, Shaq gets blown up. We have an entire action scene that I'm just going to gloss over of uh, a helicopter chasing chance on horseback. And for some reason they can't hit him. Dude, this, they this, have a grenade yeah. launcher and multiple machine guns. Just doesn't work. Uh, he takes some tactical roles akin to the one he took on the freeway earlier. Um, he has a bandage on his arm, though, so you can show it shows that he is vulnerable. Like he, he's human, and he uses a shotgun to scare, to scare off the helicopter. He shoots one of the guys. He shoots one of the guys hanging out the helicopter one. right in the chest. <laughs> um, dude, this uh, stunt man with the horse uh, when they gets gets knocked over, I felt bad for this horse. He does not look happy. This stunt horse. I've actually heard that like horses that are trained to take falls like that. That's they 
it could be just bullshit. It could be them blowing smoke that's, up that, our asses. But they do say that it's like fun for those horses that are trained for that. That's the production. Like, no, they fucking love it. They love doing this shit. I don't know. Yeah, they're fine. They're fine. Well, no, I, he didn't die. I, I choose to believe that the horse that took that bump from Mongo from Blazing Saddles had a ball doing that. <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> that is maybe the best horse bump in cinema history. <laughs> <laughs> Um, but yeah, anyway, the, the helicopter sequence, like I said, I'm going to gloss over that. Although I will point to the fact that, uh, dark man came out around this time and it also had, you know, liberal use of grenade launchers from helicopter. <laughs> and that was also directed by Sam Raimi. Uh, so maybe some of the stunt players that worked on this film worked on dark man as well. Uh, just, just a thought that occurred to me just now. But like I said, shotguns are, are miracle weapons in John Woo films. They can do everything. Like if you need to make a sniper shot from a mile away, you better grab that old shotgun and <laughs> grab that pump action. But um, finally, we get to the final uh, action beat, which is basically the last half hour of the movie <laughs> um, that takes place in... It starts out as like an industrial plant of some sort, like a worn out one. And it turns into like a warehouse for storing like Mardi Gras floats or something. I actually, when I was down there, I had a friend who used to live there. So he kind of gave me the tour of all throughout New Orleans proper. And uh, that is something you'll see, especially in like the weird sub suburban areas where because that Mardi Gras is such a massive event, like they have to store these things throughout the year. So there actually are quite a few of these giant storage areas that just house either old Mardi Gras floats or new ones that are yet to be released. So it's the weirdest thing. You'll just be driving through a small small area and you look over at some generic looking building and you'll just see some giant, you know, clown head or whatever. So it, it was kind of cool that they had that in there. Yeah. For some and it, reason, go ahead. I was say it feels like it, it was a, like this warehouse with the, all the Mardi Gras stuff felt like a Terry Gilliam movie for some reason. I, I the, don't know it's why. It's all the pipes and wires, the clutter. Maybe that's clutter. Maybe the whenever clutter. I think, uh, whenever I think Terry Gilliam, I think clutter. Like that's a good, good that's observation. Fair. Actually, his production say, design is always stuff. Anyway, I was just gonna say too. I imagine that if they had more, more of a budget, they probably would have done an actual Mardi Gras shootout, but. This seems to be a nice compromise to be like, well, what do people think of with New Orleans? Yeah. Let's yeah. find a way to shoehorn it in there. Yeah, it, it was a good way to get the the imagery in there. And like I said, from a lighting standpoint, this movie looks a lot better when we're indoors just because it's a more controlled environment. And I'm sure John Woo, because he camera movement and slow motion and stuff oftentimes requires certain types of equipment and rigging, like dolly tracks and stuff. It's probably more manageable in an indoor environment. Um, apparently, the DP had some issues with John Woo's methods um, because lighting in this warehouse environment was apparently a nightmare just because if, if you look at all the textures and surfaces and angles, like I, I could see it being difficult to, to manage. But um, this is really cool, actually. It has a really distinct look to it. Um, it starts off almost like Steven Zagali, where, where uh, Van Damme is kind of like stealth killing people, but like in the loudest possible fucking way. <laughs> like, I like how he, he's like totally unseen. And like one of the first kills he does is he kicks a gas canister at a man on a motorcycle and then shoots the gas can as it's in the guy's face. This is something that if you've ever played a video game from like the PS1 era onward, you've done this. 
he, he kicks his gas can, he shoots it in midair, and the guy gets blown out the window, and then Lance Henriksen's reaction is just like, well, fuck, we better get in there, I guess. <laughs> but it's like 20 on one, basically, although the numbers are impossible to figure out because because of the, the shots and the editing here are kind of incomprehensible at times. He shows up with like eight people, but there are like 20 guys running around this factory. Uh, I did like this, the the kick the gas can and shoot him. I'm like, okay, we're going to have some fun kills. This is going to be this gonna be a good time. Uh, is the next kill, does he ride in on like a fucking bird, like a big, uh, like a, a big Mardi Gras float? Yeah, he kind of picks off some of them, and then we have almost like a Batman moment where he's taunting them from the rafters. <laughs> it's like Sting from his uh, his Crow era in WCW, um, and much like Sting from that era, he he comes down on like a yeah, he has like a like a mechanical system of like pulleys <laughs> that lowers him down, and he's like he's a sitting duck but he has a shotgun and he's the hero of the movie. So he's unstoppable. And Kyle has his hand up. <laughs> Sting was WCW. Yeah, he was basically, he was famously a WCW like diehard. Like he only, he only did a stint in, in the WWF at the very, very end there. In my short period of watching wrestling, WWF felt like Coca-Cola and WCW felt like Pepsi. Is that my Okay. Accurate. <laughs> um, yeah, lots of glorious kills in this sequence. Um, tons of slow motion, and this is where John Wooisms become very apparent. Where I think we get doves, and everybody, everybody who gets killed here has to get shot about thirty times. It's not doves, though. It's pigeons. It's yeah. pigeons. Yes, and it's I pigeons. love that because it's just again, it's taking you know a John Wooism but making it you know they're, New Orleans based. There is one dove at the scene before, but I picked up on that too. I'm like, wait, these aren't fucking doves. These are pigeons. What was the purpose of the dove budget? Uh, the, the drink you were looking for, Trevor, was brisk. Yeah. <laughs> Lipton. <laughs> Liptonized brisk. Yeah. Brisk. <laughs> yeah, for real. Um, but yeah, uh, you're, you're absolutely right. He, at one point, we do get to see that he has a, he's friendly with pigeons also. So there's nothing like, cool. Or, there's nothing cinematically cool about fucking pigeons. Like, they don't even fly that much. They walk. They're a walking bird that can fly. <laughs> it they don't shows, even know. It shows that he's one of the people, though. Like, he, he, does, he doesn't hang out with just doves. Like, he's one of the people. He hangs out with the pigeons, yeah. the common birds. <laughs> so he's, one, he's one of us. Does John Woo use any other kind of birds? Or is it, it I thought it was always doves. I think it's almost exclusively doves. <laughs> Strange. Yeah, he, he has a lot of quirks. He has a lot of things that are, re, are re, reoccurring elements in his filmography. And that's certainly well, one of them. Well, it's just funny. It's pigeons this time. And if it's always doves, why would this one be pigeons? Is this the one who's like, no, 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 no. I'm not happy about this movie. We're using fucking pigeons. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't know. I, it, it's a curious addition to the film, but, but it's certainly there. And, and it's noticeable for sure. Because we do get like precisely one dove earlier in the movie. But um, maybe he decided to keep the religious iconography out of this one because it was his first American film. It's like maybe don't want to step. Maybe don't want to step on toes all like right out the gate. <laughs> take it easy. We take that shit seriously here, especially in the south. So just well, he he got there eventually though. Face off has plenty of that shit. I think it had more to do with the fact that the protagonist is supposed to be a homeless guy. <laughs> 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 
yeah, that, that makes sense. That tracks. Um, but yeah, long story short, every, everybody gets shot here. Um, Sven Oli Thorson gets a glorious death. Um, there's a reoccurring thing in the choreography here where people got to die many, many times. Like, it, actually, it's not that they have to be killed more than once. It's more that it's Van Damme. So he has to shoot him to kill him. But then he's Van Damme. So he also has to just kick him just because. <laughs> so like almost everyone he he kills like multiple people in a row it's like bang 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 whoosh, bang 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 whoosh. it's like maybe switch up the order or something <laughs> like, like i think they're already dead but um and he gets like a a one-on-one with arnold Vosloo that uh has a john wooism in the form of that iconic like face-off shot where they're back to back against the same wall and the camera's positioned in a way where we can see both of them like taunting each other and reloading their weapons. And I found Vosloo's death more puzzling than anything else. Because like they have a little scrap, like they're shooting at each other and the the action choreography is is plenty fun and it's certainly energetic and engaging. And then the the finishing blows like Chance slides under a table. He he like jumps out a window and slides on his back on the floor and like shoots up. He does a, a die hard two. Die hard. Yeah, That's die hard two. Um Die Hard Die Hard One. Well, yeah, under the table. That's right. Yeah, I was thinking. You get more a chance the, to the... kill somebody. Don't hesitate. Yeah. Don't hesitate. Don't hesitate. <laughs> Whatever the fuck accent that is. <laughs> but uh, I was thinking the the scaffolding uh, from the second one at the airport. Um, I haven't seen that one in so long. I don't remember the scaffolding. The sitting dick. <laughs> oh, gotcha. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Um, but anyway, he shoots the he shoots the fuck out of him as he's laying on the ground, and then Vazlu like doesn't die instantly. And he like eases over and then Van Damme props him up on one leg. So he like puts his foot on the guy's chest, like the dying man who he hates. And then the guy like Vosley like pulls a grenade off of this bandolier he has. And then that's kind of it. He just, just kind of like kicks him over and he knocks him into some shit. But I guess it's because he's supposed to pocket the grenade and they couldn't think of an easier way for him to do that um, in terms of like logistics, like, in terms of like the choreography and whatnot but it's just so awkward because they share this moment and that's a staple of john Woo's filmography he he really likes to build those kind of weird like almost like psychosexual relationships between his heroes and his villains but in this case it's like arnold fossil is just a straight up bad guy like like you're not supposed to like him in any way other than the fact that it's arnold Vosloo. but i mean he's pretty charismatic like you're not supposed to like him as like in the movie but you still like him you know what i mean like as an act like you're still kind of drawn to him yeah and he did also express uh he did kind of butt heads with lance henriksen he did like from a logistic standpoint it makes a lot more sense for me to just shoot him from the helicopter instead of like going head to head with him in this enclosed environment where he has every advantage uh, so I guess you're supposed to develop sympathy points for him or something. Either way, it, it's awkward, to say the least. Um, and then the final showdown, of course. Oh, by the way, Sven Ole Thorson, the way he meets his end. Um, so he does get shot to shit. Um, but the finishing blow that Van Damme just has to do to him is his trademark, like, leaping, spinning back kick. Um, and the whole reason they put that cigar in his mouth throughout all of Sven Ole Thorson's screen time was... Uh, probably a to like reference Arnold in some way and B so Van Damme could kick it out of his fucking face. (laughs) And it's pretty awesome. I'm I'm sure Sven didn't have fun taking that particular bump because 
he did eat like a, a fucking waffle stomper to the jaw <laughs> but it's pretty fucking cool actually um and van damme even has a line about how loud his shirt is or something but the final showdown is between uh lance henriksen and and van damme of course and it plays out in this like fiery inferno uh, this is very much john woo uh playing to all of his his like melodramatic visual strengths it's like a hellscape <laughs> um and it's interesting because we actually get a uh, something that pops up in his filmography a lot and that's like the the final showdown that in, instead of like 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 you would expect in like a martial arts movie like like a back and forth just like fight to the death or something it usually comes down to like a hostage situation or something where it's it's almost akin to like a western or something where it's like a a quick draw situation but with an added element of like a, an innocent person being involved uh, i think the killer has this hard-boiled certainly has this um face-off kind of has this uh twice actually more than once yes. in fact yes and this certainly has it in the form of a uh, lance henriksen taking nat hostage well, and stabbing, well, think, stabbing uncle duvet <laughs> well john travolta has cast or he has sean archer's uh face hostage so not only does he take his daughter he also has his face yeah and he's threatening to cut it off uh, he as starts he, cutting it yeah, yeah. <laughs> i'm ready ready for the big ride, baby i love that movie it's something special i it's one of the most watched movies i have matt probably is just rolling his eyes like he's like that in speed motherfucker like (laughs) like why just why (laughs) i mean you get you get goofy off the walls nick cage in the beginning and then you get whatever the fuck john travolta is doing the rest of that movie just the fact that you have two of the most famous over actors of all time playing one another yeah. Is such a brilliant concept. <laughs> yeah, no, I I love that on paper. That yeah, I I know they're talking about remaking or doing a sequel to it. Is it have those two actors? I don't know. Um, oh. but but a face-off project is greenlit. Like it's in production as we speak. I don't know if it's a sequel. I don't know if it's a remake. But um, it certainly has brought to mind like interesting conversations where it's like, who would I do? what two chronic over actors do I know that are working today that I would like to see do impressions of each other? I, I don't have an answer at the moment, but really, really fun food for thought for sure. I, I would definitely watch John Travolta and, and Nick Cage do uh, again off too. Yeah. A hundred percent. Yeah. Oh yeah. Nick Cage has to bring his own wardrobe though. Like <laughs> <laughs> he actually dressed like, <laughs> he actually dressed like Castor Troy. That's, that's what that's I'm talking about. No, he he actually like they shouldn't hire anyone to do his wardrobe. They should just let him do it. <laughs> no, his fucking weird ass would come in just regular ass suits in that case. Like I really feel like this is what the character would do. <laughs> He'd be contrarian just to be a prick. He would, yeah. <laughs> fucking asshole. Um, but yeah we're we're at the home stretch here so we do have this final showdown where for once a shotgun is not the right tool for the job because as lance henriksen rightly points out you know he's at a distance i'm i'm holding you hostage poor natalie or natasha rather and uh if he shoots me he's going to shoot you too um and there's some shenanigans here where uh, we get this drawn out moment where she uh is asked to load his gun for him. It's, it's uh, certainly uh, played up by Lance Henriksen. You could tell he had fun with this particular beat. Um, 
And then there's some shenanigans here where somehow uh, Van Damme closes the distance between the two of them. Uh, they go at it for a bit. Lance Henriksen's beaten on him with a stick of flaming wood. Uh, Van Damme has to kick him multiple times. He gets a classic Van Damme headbutt in there because for whatever reason, that is actually one of his trademark moves. Is it? I thought that was a Mel Gibson thing. Mel Gibson had to headbutt everybody. Mel Gibson has to headbutt people a lot. Like, like yeah. when he goes at it with Jet Li, he gets like three of those like forehead shots in. <laughs> headbutt. I think he headbutts in the Patriot. He's got a headbutt. Wife's got to die and he has to take a beating. <laughs> yeah. No, th- those are all required elements in most of your Mel Gibson films. Um, but yeah, Van Damme, curiously enough, a headbutt of all things is something that he does in almost every movie he has. Uh, he has a particular gut punch that he does. And of course, the... The leaping kick he he still can do that shit today because that is his fucking brand <laughs> he better be able to fucking do it um and he certainly does it to lance henriksen but i love when lance henriksen meets his end it's it's beautiful it, it like if you're going to end a movie like literally 20 seconds after this this is how you do it because <laughs> um do you want to do you want to explain what happens here I'll, I'll let you explain it um but i i feel like this could have been a little bit tighter with the dick grenade uh it takes forever for it to go off like i was expecting it to be like down the pants push and then boom dick explosion but it's not what happens please yeah um before the final battle by the way um lance hendrickson has this weird moment where he gets to throw a big old tirade and we have all these weird crossfades and it's it's like almost supernatural (laughs) where he's yelling about like i'm eternal like you can't kill me and it's like I don't even know what the fuck movie we're watching right now, but I think, I think John Woo just told him just, just go. Go nuts. Just, I, it felt like the devil's go. advocate, like that fucking 20 long speech that he gives Keanu Reeves at the end. It felt a little devil's advocate. It, it felt like somebody was told to take a walk with the script and just go nuts. And he certainly did. And like I said, I think that's part of why he has good things to say about John Woo is he, he was probably given free reign to just like be big, be loud in a way he didn't normally get to do. And like I said, during this final battle, he is set on fire. Lance Henderson, not a stunt person, like clear as day, center frame. His entire duster, his big jacket is on fire. And we get to see him take it off and, and carry out a dialogue scene immediately after disrobing in the same shot. And you can actually see like the, the burn gel on his head, on, on his neck to prevent him from being burned. Uh, shit. <laughs> like, I'm, I'm sure <laughs> all credit to him, man. That's, that's a scary stunt to do. I, I'd be freaked out about being set the fuck on fire. <laughs> I'm not, I'm not doing that. No, no, no. controlled set or not. Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I'd be looking at Sam Raimi the whole time. Just like, am I going to be okay? <laughs> And he's just like he's just sipping his coffee, just like I don't know. <laughs> oh, I'm, I'm just here to observe. Yeah, Ted. Ted would probably do the same thing. <laughs> like it's like for, first you lock eyes with John Woo, and he's just like I don't care. And you look at Sam uh, Raimi, he's like I don't know. And Ted Raimi's just pointing at you and laughing. Ted. <laughs> Ted was in uh, JCVD's uh, trailer trying to find his cocaine. More than likely. <laughs> um, but yeah, basically uh, the grenade that uh, Van Damme had taken from Arnold Vosloo. He puts it down Lance Henriksen's pants and he kicks him onto a Mardi Gras float where he like fumbles with his pants for a second. Like you said, the edit here isn't super tight. Um, But the punchline here is that he does get the grenade out of his pants. Instead of throwing it away, he's he's attempting to unscrew it to remove the fuse from the explosive. 
and he gets it out <laughs> and he has this like delighted expression on his face like he's so relieved and then there's a spark from the fuse into the explosive and he, his last words on on screen are just oh <laughs> There was a, uh, I don't remember what movie it was, but this bomb falls. I think it might have been Pearl Harbor where a bomb falls. and The guy's like, guys, it's a dud. Like, it just doesn't go off right away. I think you're right. Yeah. It wasn't a dud. Uh, But yeah, you could have just had the beautiful dick dick explosion here. But (laughs) it's kind of disappointing. Well, I'm just glad that we got to see Lance Henriksen do a comedy beat. Going, oh, <laughs> oh, he turns into snot. Like it, like the explosion. Like he actually just turns into pieces. Yeah, no, it, it's a tasty explosion in, in a movie packed with tasty explosions. But um, we do discover that Uncle Duvet, uh, he did not eat shit. Uh, he had a flask uh, in his pocket, much like you see in many other movies, right where he was stabbed earlier. Poor Uncle Duvet got shot and stabbed. <laughs> like that's that's another reason why he exists in this film is just to like threaten the viewer with the possibility of poor Wilford Brimley eating shit on screen. It's like create instant empathy points. Um, but no, he survives, and the movie quite rightly makes a hasty retreat. <laughs> like, like every every explosion that can be everything that can be exploded has been exploded. Let's pick up Uncle Duvet. Credits. Credence. <laughs> That's it. <laughs> uh, so yeah, that was Hard Target uh, from 1993, directed by John Woo and starring Jean-Claude Van Damme. Uh, closing thoughts, fellas. You got any? <laughs> like I mentioned, like I think this one does a good job of touching on the three major elements that you need to have for any Jean-Claude Van Damme vehicle from this era, where they have to have an excuse for his accent they have to have him doing the splits and or doing a kick and yeah he always has to have some aspect to his character that stands out for whatever reason that reminds you of who that character is you know be it a tattoo of the american flag on his bicep despite the fact he's clearly from brussels or you know in this case probably one of the best mullets on cinema history easily (laughs) yeah um i i think it's interesting that we ended up picking hard target because actually this was this was like a source of debate at least in my head like i i was very uncertain because i know i know we should talk about van damme for action april it's only appropriate but when i thought about kyle and like him not really having a proper introduction to van damme i mean we did street fighter the movie earlier um for catching up on cinema but that's that's a van damme movie in name only that is raul julia's movie for sure and it's a huge ensemble cast, so he's kind of lost in the fold. So it's really not a good proper introduction. And in some ways, Hard Target isn't exactly the best introduction uh, for him. Uh, you do get to see him like glamorized in ways that maybe you don't get from some of some of his better movies. Like some of the cinematography, especially in the early goings in this film, is almost laughable in in, in how they kind of like play up his handsomeness as as a selling point for this film. Um, but this all this film also serves as like a precedent though in his filmography where this is John Woo's first American film. Um, but beyond that, uh, this beyond uh, earlier in his career where he had uh, what no no retreat, no surrender, um, directed by Corey Yuen. This is also a Chinese director. And then moving forward, he would continue to do that throughout his filmography, seemingly like periodically, where 
it seemed very common for producers to pair him up with Hong Kong filmmakers like uh, Ringo Lam, I think was one of them. And uh, Choi Hark was another one, another big contemporary of John Woo's. Um, so it, it kind of like served as like a stamp on his brand, I guess, where it's like, oh, he's, he's the action guy who, who works with Hong Kong filmmakers and kind of plays, plays along with their style and stuff. But um, as a showcase for Van Damme as a whole, though, Personally, I think Bloodsport is the movie that best sums him up. But as far as like straightforward action movies go, I think this is maybe the best one he has. Uh, like I said, Time Cop was the one that made all the money. Um, I don't necessarily know if I would call it an outright better movie. It's certainly a more, um, I guess, like ambitious production, at least in terms of like concept. Um but yeah, this this was a weird one. I'm I'm not sure if you really have yet to see a true like true blue Van Damme movie in some ways because in a lot of ways this is more of a showcase for John Woo. But uh, Kyle, uh, now that you've seen a Van Damme movie front to back that wasn't Street Fighter, how did you feel about it? It's pretty silly. Uh, <laughs> pretty pretty goofy movie. Uh, I had fun watching it, um, and now. I can see some of the uh, some of the allegory, some of the story underneath that Matt pointed out. I'll keep that in mind next time I rewatch it. It'll be a while, but uh, I had fun while watching it. I think it's also you just have to remember that, like, he at his heart he was like the fighting movie guy, and it just so happened that he made he tried to make this transition these more action oriented one. Universal Soldier was another one that would have been a good choice for this. The only thing with that is I think like this is the one where you really got to see kind of both sides of it. You got to see him making that transition to the action star, but also see why he wasn't as successful when they kind of tried to make him into that and why he didn't quite match up to the Arnolds or the Stallones even um, just in terms of, you know, the pantheon of action stars. So I think it was a good selection to kind of highlight him at his peak powers. Yeah, I, I agree. Um, I think Universal Soldier, the problem with that is that he was sharing the spotlight with Dolph. Um, and it's also not a very uh, demanding performance from him. He's he's basically supposed to play just like a Terminator, essentially. He, he has very little dialogue. He has very little character. He's just supposed to be like a stone-faced killer uh, that you know has some sympathetic elements to them. But um, this one, at least he gets to play a character and, and be himself a little bit on screen. So you get to see that swagger um, that you don't get in Universal Soldier. But interestingly enough, that's also another situation where it's more of a spotlight for a director than its star. Because uh, that was uh, Roland Emmerich, I think. That, I think that was his first American movie, um, which, you know, that's a big name that would go on to do enormous things just a few years later, very similar to John Woo. So um, man, when you really think about it, it's like, man, Van Damme's worked with some really, really good people. It didn't exactly yield the most phenomenal results, um, but I guess he served as like a stepping stone for bigger and better things for other people. Um, and he got paid in the meantime, so it worked out. <laughs> okay, well, I guess that about wraps it up. But uh, before we go, I just want to thank my brother, Matt, uh, for joining us in this episode. Um, in a lot of ways, he's obviously more of a Van Damme expert than I am. So it was really helpful to have him along to point out some of the details that I clearly missed. But um, Matt also has a podcast of his own. So I figure it's only right that I let him uh, introduce that. Yeah, being an expert at Van Damme is really going to look good on my resume. That explains <laughs> so much. 
Uh, no, it's it's catching up or not catching up. Let's say it's Couch Co-op <laughs> is the uh, <laughs> podcast that I actually run with a couple of friends, and it's essentially just a book club for video game nerds. So each week we get together and discuss either a demo for a game or actually discuss a topic at hand. So yeah, and that's available anywhere podcasts are available. Yeah, thanks. Thanks for that plug, Matt. Couch Co-op is a wonderful show. I've been on it a few times. It's always fun to swap war stories about video games. But um, thank you so much, dear listener, for listening. But before we go, um, if you'd like to catch up on any of our Catching Up on Cinema content, um, you can find all of that collected on our website at catchinguponcinema.com. Uh, we also have a couple of social media accounts in the form of an Instagram at Catching Up on Cinema, as well as a Twitter at Catching Cinema. So feel free to hit me up at either of those and I'll get back to you in a jiffy. Uh, And the podcast is available on pretty much any platform you can imagine. So fucking Google it. Um, But that being said, thank you so much for listening and we will catch you next time. 